0: I'm Jesse. And I'm Josh. And this is Slice by Slice, a podcast where we dissect and discuss horror films by categories and subgenres, such as goblins, fairy tales, franchises, and directors' bodies of work. And of course,
1: we can't dissect and discuss these films in the detail we do without spoilers. Wait, did you say fairy
0: tales? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Josh, but don't worry, because it should be a piece of cake. Uh Uh-huh. Well, guys, we're here on August the 19th, 2020 to cover dark fantasy movies on episode 47. So we're getting kind of close to 50.
1: Yeah, we are. And uh, we're we're getting a little bit outside of our bread and butter, but
0: I don't care. <laughs> I'm having fun, which I need fun right now. So this is, this is going to be great. Yes. Like I said, it's, it's going to be a piece of cake. So uh, let's go over some news real quick. See what we got here. Eli Roth's History of Horrors coming back for season two in October. Nice. So he had some great guests on there and it was broken down by categories and subgenres. It's kind of reminiscent of two really cool guys I know. So that should be fun to watch again. I'm excited because The New Mutants might actually come out. It's supposed to come out on August 28th, which is going to be like a horror-like Marvel movie. But I think that's the same day Bill and Ted comes out, and that's like three days before my birthday. So I might have to have some sort of movie party.
1: Um, there's like one or two other movies that are coming out on the 28th. Like it's it's the day that a lot of shit's being released.
0: There's a lot of cool things actually that have been announced in the uh, past two weeks since we recorded. So I'm excited about a lot of these things. The sequel to The Babysitter called Killer Queen's coming out in September. So I have no fucking clue what that'll be about. But as long as it's as fun as the uh, first one. I can't wait to see it. Agreed. That was one of those just like mindless, fun horror movies. You know, there's nothing significant about it. No, but it's great. Blumhouse, who uh, we tend to like here on the podcast, has a Amazon Studios show coming out, or I guess it's it's four movies, really. It's like four thrillers slash horror movies. But what I'm excited about is they're all connected in some way. Okay. So it might be interesting to see how that turns out. I'm not sure how well Blumhouse will do dipping their toes outside of horror, but I bet it ends up being more horror than people think on some of those. I hope so. And not only do we like Blumhouse on this podcast, but we also like Flanagan. Yeah, yeah. And Mike Flanagan's Midnight Mass has begun filming for Netflix. So that's going to be another horror show made by Mike Flanagan. So I'm excited. Okay. Okay. If I remember correctly, Midnight Mass is the book sitting on the bookshelf in Gerald's Game. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that might even be one of the books that the woman in Hush was writing. Huh. Like, I think it's all, like, intermingled together. Okay. This will kind of go into what we watched later, but Netflix has renewed Warrior Nun for a second season. Not sure how I feel about that yet, because I'm, like, halfway through it, and it's just kind of like... Not bad enough to make me stop watching it yet, but not good enough for me to be excited for the next episode. I just keep kind of grinding through it. Uh, like So
1: like the last four or five seasons of Supernatural?
0: <laughs> no, no, no. That was the middle four or five seasons of Supernatural. <laughs> I actually have enjoyed the past few. Hey, I didn't have that on my list as news, but they started filming Supernatural again. So there we go. Oh, and
1: and I'm like a season and a half behind.
0: Oh, uh, uh, I'm so Jensen good. Jensen The Boys? Yes yes <laughs> he's gonna be soldier boy or whatever i'm excited yes that should be fun i got a lot on here guys but we're almost through it guillermo del toro he's working on pinocchio and he added Kate blanchett to the cast so you can't go wrong with that that's
1: already sounding interesting
0: this one's a bit more serious but uh unsolved mysteries has six new episodes coming to netflix in october and one of them will be a ghost story yes Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> That's about all I had for for notes that I took throughout the past two weeks. You got anything interesting you saw? Dude, I
1: haven't seen shit. <laughs> I kind of watched the second season of the Umbrella Academy with the wife. Okay. I, I was in and out. But from what I saw, it it you haven't watched the second season yet, have you?
0: I haven't finished the first season yet because oh. my wife got out of it a little bit. And because everybody's talking about the second season again, she decided we could go back and finish the first season together. I was, I was kind of holding off to see if she'd get back into it. And we tried to start back where we left off last night and the kids kept coming in the room and it was a no-go.
1: Uh, I'll, I'll keep my opinion to myself then because it has to do with <laughs> the first season and the second season. Okay, okay. I do have a correction for myself from the last episode that was pointed out by my wife. Apparently, I'm not allowed to say where I watch shit as far as streaming services go from memory. I should really note it because <laughs> like half of what I said that was on Netflix was on Amazon, and half of what I said was on Amazon was on Netflix Ooh. or some shit like that. So uh, anybody who caught that, just... uh. Just look for what I was talking about if you're interested (laughs) in no specific place. Just use Google. You know, drip your DNA (laughs) into the fucking screen and go.
0: Yeah, we're not sponsored by any of these services, but we watch some of the movies that are off the beaten path or older or anything like that. And we, we know of a way where you can watch it legally. It's kind of fun to share it so you can go along and watch it. Like, somebody contacted me that was listening to our Fetty episode, and they told me it was fucking awesome, but just our buildup into don't breathe they hadn't seen it yet and they decided to just stop and go watch it <laughs> but yeah it's, it's nice to share so that other people can can check out the films that we're talking about did you get a chance to see anything else or no it's it's been
1: it's been a time we we're out and about last weekend and then i i've just i've just sat and watched legend over and over again
0: (laughs) (laughs) so i watched the movies for our podcast a good bit and the little bit of free time i have right now like it work is just insane right now with so many remote things happening so my time has been scarce to say the least i haven't even really got to play video games again but i did watch the season premiere of lovecraft country on hbo and it was fucking awesome (laughs) And I can't wait till this Sunday to see the second episode. It's produced by Jordan Peele and J.J. Abrams. So we got some heavy hitters behind it. So So based off a book, I'll probably end up reading it, I'm sure. And then, like I said earlier, I was watching The Warrior Nine. We kind of like watch an episode a night, and we're about halfway through it. But that's it. It's all I've gotten to watch. Well, damn. I guess we need to get into what we watched with a purpose
1: uh, since the last (laughs) episode.
0: (laughs) God damn it. I watched everything with a purpose. (laughs) it just might not be relevant to you
1: that's self-serving though see guys we do this for y'all here we are at episode 47 and uh this is still self-funded because we enjoy doing it so uh (laughs) tell your friends to uh follow us on our socials and uh and check us out because we want to reach more people and that's the whole point of us doing this in all seriousness
0: and we have seen a lot of growth on the podcast and it's just really awesome to see how many downloads we're getting right now. And we really appreciate that guys. So some of you definitely are spreading the word, just try to get on that social media, even though we're not using it a whole lot yet, we're trying to get better at it, but apparently that's how people gauge things. So we want to, yeah. we want to get out there a little bit more in the horror world. So. But anyways, like we said at the beginning, we're here to talk about dark fantasy movies and I could have made so many movies come into this list and there will be a dark fantasy two and probably even a three relatively soon. Maybe not (laughs) on the next one, but there were more movies I wanted to cram in here. But Josh and I chose Labyrinth and Legend. And these are movies that not only did we both grow up on and watch a ridiculous amount, we also watched these two films together a ridiculous amount when we <laughs> were kids. I don't know why, but like, I guess, cause they weren't quite horror. So even when we were younger, we could play them. Like I remember watching labyrinth with you and rewinding it over and over again so we could get the Your Mommy of the Babe thing down pat. Like I just remember doing that over and over again. And, you know, I still... I hadn't seen the movie in forever. And I said that to my wife as soon as I hit play, because... I got to sit down and watch this movie with the kids for the podcast one of the times. It's only the second time I've ever been able to research a movie for the podcast with my kids. But they <laughs> fucking loved the movie, which was awesome. But I did that whole thing, and my wife's like, I don't know how you remember that. And then I did it again in Legend, but that's because there's, there's like one thing I remember from there. But <laughs> without further ado, I'm going to dive into 1986's Labyrinth, which was directed by Jim Henson, right? Yep, yup. Of Henson Associates, you know, Muppet Babies, Fraggle Rock, Dark Crystal, lots of cool shit. And you definitely get his touch on this. And this is one of the best looking movies I've seen from that era because Henson puppets look that good. Yeah. And the use of practical effects and these puppets make them still look great to this day and just how ahead of their game they always were with their with their animatronics and stuff on their puppets and it looks really fucking cool and i'll try to dive into that a little bit as we go but you definitely get that jim henson feel on it and It was just awesome. I will say it was weird watching the old 80s documentary on this movie narrated by Jim Henson, and it sounds like Kermit the Frog's talking to you the whole time because Jim Henson could do a lot of voices, but his natural voice and Kermit the Frog were not that far off from each other. (laughs) The story of the film was written by Dennis Lee, partially. I think there was a lot of names involved, but this is one of them. This guy really he composed music for Fraggle Rock and that's all I really could find that he had done. So I'm assuming he came up with most of this idea, right? Dude, that's fucking fine by me, man. Fraggle Rock, (laughs) Rika's castle, all that shit, man. Yeah. (laughs) And then they had Terry Jones of Monty Python fame, write The screenplay. And then after that, it got passed around a little bit. I'm not really sure why. And they had other people, work on the screenplay some more and most of the humor had been taken out of it and Jim wasn't really happy about that so he gave it back to him and Terry had to go in and add jokes back that were taken out and there are definitely scenes in this movie that you can tell are are made by somebody that had something to do with Monty Python. You're damn right. There's not a whole lot of cast members in this film and I just want to point out a few of them. We have fucking David Bowie as Jareth the Goblin King and i couldn't picture anybody else doing it and i'll go over their short list in a minute but he was fucking fantastic in this movie him and his terrifying bowie bulge that yes. <laughs> was very prominent in the movie and never noticed it as a child That shit got on set before he did. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus Christ. Um, I'll get in that in a minute. And then Jennifer Connolly. I don't remember if this was her first or second film, but she was 14 when they filmed this movie and she was fucking great in it. And, um, I mean, God bless. What what do we say that she's been in? I was thinking of her from fucking Requiem for a Dream, right? <laughs> yes. She was most recently in Snowpiercer. She's badass on that show. Let me just
1: say that it's great that your brain goes from she was 14. She was in Requiem for a Dream.
0: <laughs> I'm just saying like that was like a movie. You can't forget that movie. I've actually only seen it once and I'll never watch it again. Oh, dude,
1: if it's if it's been years, because it's one of those I'll come back and watch every few years to remind myself how fucked up it is.
0: (laughs) I mean, like I'm a Marvel guy and she was Betty Ross and Hulk, but it was one of the shitty Hulks. Um, (laughs) They're all you broke my brain. I can't even think of anything else. She was in she was in in Waking the Dead, right? Like she's been in some shit. She's a great actress either way. Okay, Yeah, yeah, but she plays Sarah The main character of this film, and um, I'll I'll dive into that in a little bit more detail in a second. And really, I mean, there are are other people in this movie, but it's a lot of puppeteers controlling a lot of puppets. Yeah, it (laughs) is. And Brian Henson doing quite a few voices, (laughs) which is Jim's son. And... A few interesting facts. So not only was this film made by Henson and Associates, but it was also made by Lucasfilm LTD. And George Lucas was a producer. And this was made in 86. So it was three years after Return of the Jedi. So he had already ran, you know, three very successful movies, to say the least, with the original three Star Wars films in here. And I'm sure he had already made Willow and at least one Indiana Jones movie, right? Yes. We're not here to cover George Lucas right now, but I'm saying he had he had done quite a bit and As a producer, I'm sure he was on set quite a bit. And you can feel a little bit of that in there. There is some very early, I guess we'll call it CGI in this film that (laughs) ILM did. And it's the worst looking part of the movies. But uh, (laughs) when you watch a documentary and they have George explain how they did it, you're like, well, holy shit. And I'll get to that in a minute. It's an interesting story. This movie features the first fully computer generated animal ever on film. And that's the owl in the opening credits. And that was ILM, but. You know, that was just on sort a of black background with credit. So it doesn't look great, but when you think about when it came out, it looks pretty fucking good.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was better than a lot of the hokey shit we, we saw being tried. That was that was ballsy shit
0: <laughs>
1: when they did that.
0: The short list to play Jareth was David Bowie, number one choice, Michael Jackson, or Sting. They got their top pick first and the best pick, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, uh, sting I could almost see yeah but that's it and I, I wasn't Prince even at least talked about at one point he may not be on the short list but I think he got mentioned
0: <laughs> so if you go to IMDB or a couple of random sites on the internet they all name Prince and a couple other people and they all say the same people Mick Jaggers on there and stuff <laughs> when I watched the documentary Jim Henson said Bowie Jackson and sting yeah <laughs> so if it was mentioned elsewhere Fine, but I'm just going to go off of what I saw Jim say.
1: Hey, it would have been cool to see Prince because he would have had to have like looked up to Sarah.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: Honestly, this had to have been around the time Sting was shooting Dune, right? So Holy crap,
1: that ties in with other shit, but <laughs> there's a lot of shit that ties in between these two movies that I didn't realize until we got ready for this episode, but we'll get into some of that later.
0: <laughs> I should have said this at the beginning, but the conceptual design of all the creatures was by Brian Froud. Fruit. I'm not sure how you say it. His son, Toby, is Toby in the movie. Okay. But he designed all of the goblins, which the story was written off of, in an art book. And they use that to write the screenplay. Yeah. Like, just his art book. And he's famous outside of the labyrinth for doing, like, fantasy-type creature artwork and stuff, which is a funny story that's going to come up in a minute. But let's dive right into the movie. But we open up with the owl flying, like I said earlier. The uh computer generated owl in front of the credits and it flies into the shot and turns into a real owl basically, which lands in front of Sarah who we see in her, her Ren fair outfit, basically <laughs> reciting the lines from a book called the labyrinth. Right. And she's doing a scene where she has to argue with the goblin King to get something back. And she can't remember the lines. And then she hears the fucking clock tower from back to the future or something go off and (laughs) realizes she's an hour late to be home and has to take off running through a severe storm. And her dog Merlin follows her and (laughs) this dog looks badass, man, but he's like a, it's a sheepdog, right? Yeah. How does this fucker see? I know <laughs> they purposely picked that breed of dog because they needed the dog to be a puppet for a big part of the movie. Yeah. And that would be the easiest kind of puppet to make was a sheepdog because you could hide everything with the fur. <laughs> but Sarah runs up to the front door soaking wet. so's Merlin. And her stepmom is pissed because she's an hour late and they're trying to go out on a date night and she has to watch her half brother, Toby. And she gets angry with her stepmother, lets her know that, that this isn't fair. Okay. And get used to this line because you're going to hear it a lot. Yeah. (laughs) But Sarah storms up to her room and she's practicing the lines from the book as we get a slow pan through her room. And we see lots of important things revealed right here in this opening scene. And I can't remember. What's that called?
1: Um, I believe it's foreshadowing.
0: Yes, yes. I even asked for it this time. I invited it into my life. (laughs) But as the camera pans around, I'm sure I missed some shit, but this is just the ones that I caught on a couple viewings. You see a doll that looks like the fire demons. Yep. You see a music box of a princess dancing that has a very soon to be familiar looking dress. Yep. You see a copy of the book, Where the Wild Things Are, which Jim was actually sued to not make the movie by the author of that book because... He has another book that has a very similar story. Jim won the lawsuit, but he wanted to put that book in there as an homage because he was inspired by him for some of the creatures, right?
1: Yeah, it wasn't a pissing contest at all.
0: I mean, how can you get mad at Jim Henson? <laughs> He's <laughs> the nicest guy.
1: He's Kermit the Frog, man. How can you get I mad know, at him? I know, I
0: know. <laughs> <laughs> you see a uh, fox dressed in, well, quite frankly, a Ren Fair outfit. Um, <laughs> A Marble Labyrinth. I used to have one of those, man. Those things are badass. Nope. Yep. Many fairy tale novels like Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, Alice Through the Looking Glass, Wizard of Oz, Grimm's Fairy Tales. Frood's book was supposed to be in here, one of his big fantasy novels, and Jim actually forgot to put it in the shot when they filmed it. Oh, that dick. Which is funny because his son's in the movie and he drew all the creatures. <laughs> um, there's a book in that looks like Hoggle that we will be introduced to in a minute and pictures of David Bowie everywhere with a woman that is supposed to be Sarah's mom in the mirror and on the desk. And uh, I'll get into that in a minute, but her dad comes to the door to talk to her cause they're about to leave. And if you pay attention to the room, when she's talking to her dad, you can see a statue of Jareth, the goblin King on her desk yep, and a Ludo doll by the door. Yep. And uh, over her bed is a poster of MC Escher's relativity, which is definitely in this movie in a little bit. Whoa, and you mean that's
1: not called Crazy Stairs?
0: <laughs> no. <laughs> and I am probably missing some shit. Feel free to email me, but you get the gist of it. Yeah. There's all our inspiration right there. <laughs> <laughs> but if you pay attention to the story that she's reading in the book throughout the scene, you can notice that this part of the book is about a girl going to the Goblin King in his room to get a child back that was taken. And... Also, if you pay attention, you'll notice that she whines a fuck ton in this movie, like almost to the point of being an obnoxious actress. She's wh- so whiny in this film. Yeah, like the entire film. <laughs> Not the entire film. This whole <laughs> movie is about learning lessons, Josh, and I'm, she gets I'm better well and better. better. Yeah, I know. Okay, there's those great. three. There's three lines. I know. <laughs> you would think you would think that she was a terrible actress, but she changes throughout the movie, like a like a butterfly coming out of the cocoon. she has an arc (laughs) yes (laughs) Oh, okay (laughs) but speaking of whining because we're at that part of the movie right now (laughs) she continues to whine even though her parents are gone all the way into her brother toby's room where she's pissed off because this infant somehow has one of her stuffed bears named lancelot i don't know how he got it he can't i guess he can walk a little but still the parents got this thing okay and since Toby's crying, Sarah decides to tell him a story about how horrible it is for a girl to have to take care of her half brother and being treated so poorly like a house slave, right? And she's saying it kind of like a fairy tale story, like she's telling Cinderella story, right? She's very yeah. dramatic. And you can tell, like, honestly, if this was like a. A girl that was in theater in school yeah, and that's stuff exactly is probably how she would act. But I mean, I'm assuming by the outfit and and her rehearsing the play, I mean, I think that's who she's supposed to be. That's the kind of character she's supposed to be, right? Absolutely. But the story she's telling Toby is kind of fucked up about how she feels about him and hates him and stuff. And it's all terrible shit. And probably any of us with much younger siblings that we had to babysit probably had to say that at some point. But <laughs> my, my younger siblings only two years younger than me, so I didn't have to do that. But I definitely have witnessed this before. <laughs>
1: And hey, my little sister's 13 or 14 years younger than me. So, yeah. Yeah, I've been in the situation.
0: <laughs> like, please stop
1: crying. I'm just trying to watch Bobby's World. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that show was great. <laughs> but in this fucked up story, she's telling Toby about how if she says the words, the goblins can come take him away. Please, please don't make me say the words, Toby. And... Um, This sounds really dark and you would think this whole scene is very dark, except for it keeps cutting to an army of goblins, which also sounds dark, but they look really cute and they're kind of funny. Yeah. They're all adorable. (laughs) They're like, that's not even the right words. It doesn't even start that way. And the wood words, you know what I mean? They're they're freaking hilarious. (laughs) Once again, these practical effects, man, they just look fucking fantastic. But she leaves the room and says the line one last time as she walks out of the room and gets her wish.
2: I wish the goblins would come and take you away right now.
0: She steps out into the hallway and you hear a thunder crash. And it looks like she goes to turn out the light, but like all the lights go out in the house and Toby's cries instantly stop, which are kind of eerie. And she freaks out and goes in to check on her brother and finds the crib empty. And she's startled by the owl we saw at the beginning scratching at the window. And there's goblins taunting her all over the room. She can't see them, but they're popping up and in and out and behind the things and making noises and laughing. And they're never there when she turns around. And the puppeteering here is just fucking awesome how they're diving in and out of shots. It looks great. And you can tell they have little people in costumes for some of it, kind of like how Chucky had to be done and stuff like that, right? Yeah. But the owl busts into the room and turns into the Goblin King, Jareth. So we're first introduced to David Bowie. And well, I don't think the Bowie Bulge makes an appearance until his next outfit. He has a lot of outfits in this movie, but he's not terrifying her with that yet. It's covered by his cape or whatever. The Bowie Bulge... (laughs) We're going to make this joke a lot, and you'll see a lot of references to it on the internet. His pants are so tight that you can just see his whole package the whole time <laughs> on the front. And David Bowie was not happy about it and said it was very inappropriate for a kid's movie. But I, I don't know why they didn't like give him a cup or something. <laughs> I mean, I would have fixed it. Just put a cup in there.
1: He didn't say anything during filming, or did he say it after filming?
0: I don't know. Everything I read made it sound like he was saying it the whole time, but I don't know why Jim wouldn't <laughs> have done something about it. Maybe they already made all the costumes. Who fucking knows? But it's... <laughs> It's something.
1: It's it's more
0: than something. <laughs> didn't your wife say it gave her nightmares as a child? <laughs> yes,
1: she said that was the scariest part of the movie.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even notice it till I got older, but
1: I didn't either. <laughs> oh,
0: it's because we're not attracted to men, Josh. So we weren't, you know, looking in that general region. <laughs> but uh, basically, she begs Jareth for her brother back, but he says a deal is a deal, and he does the first of many cool crystal ball juggling tricks that you'll see throughout the movie and tries to give her all of her dreams. He's basically trying to show her all of her dreams in a crystal ball and say that he can give her everything she wanted, right? Yeah, he's like the devil. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and and she argues with him and the ball turns into a snake that he throws on her throat, which turns into a scarf when it wraps around her throat and then falls to the ground and turns into a goblin and a flowing like rope, right? Yeah. All done very cool, and I always wondered how they did the juggling, and then when I saw how they did the juggling with the balls, my mind was blown in so many ways. I assumed it was some sort of rig right, that made the balls spin like that, but they actually had a very accomplished juggler. Oh, God, what was his name? It was like Michael Motion, I think. The last name was definitely Motion, but he, he was a fantastic juggler, and they would have him hide behind David Bowie with his arms through david bowie's sleeves and he'd have to blindly do the juggling and this guy is fucking fantastic but he's doing it blind and apparently had a lot of trouble doing the shots and they took forever and he would drop them a lot and he would get really frustrated but apparently david bowie was really patient and he would laugh and he just thought the whole thing was kind of funny but he's patient for all of it and the effect looks really good i'm sure nowadays they probably try to build a rig for it but I like yeah.
1: it or or they just CGI it but I, I gotta say can you imagine getting that casting call and be like um, yeah we need you to play with David Bowie's balls are you cool with this? <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I was debating on making that joke earlier, so I'm glad you did it for me. <laughs> but it's uh I was
1: remember not that long ago when like there were infomercials selling those crystal ball, not the like from the movie or anything, but like those specific ones, like learn how to do the crystal ball juggling, blah 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 shit. I've always thought that shit looks neat as shit. And it's a cool thing for him to do to just show like, I have so much power, I can just stand here and do this while I talk to you. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs>
0: No, I I definitely get it. I never saw those infomercials, but it it is really neat. And between that and the scarf trick, you're seeing lots of magician-like things. And I'm debating when I want to get into the original script. I think I'm going to save it for the end, but some of this makes sense when you know about the original script. Okay. But basically, Jareth tells her that a deal's a deal, and if she wants to get her brother back, she has to make it to his castle past the labyrinth in 13 hours to get her brother back before he becomes one of them forever, meaning he'll turn into a goblin, right? Yeah. And at this point, he points outside the window to his castle, and they basically appear in the goblin room in front of a wall that leads to the labyrinth, right? And I liked that they did the uh, 13-hour clock. Yeah. Because it's not not just that she has 13 hours. There's 13 hours in a day on the clock, and that kind of goes into that magic hour in between 12 and 1, right, that exists outside of reality that you hear about sometimes in fantasy stories. Yep, but Jareth's gone, and uh, she wants her brother, and she doesn't have much time, so she heads out on her adventure.
2: The labyrinth. Doesn't look that hard. Welp. Come on, feet.
0: But as Sarah heads towards the labyrinth, she encounters Hoggle pissing into a pond and spraying fairies with some kind of poison, right? (laughs) And she feels bad for him and tries to pick one of them up until it bites her. And Hoggle's like... What did you think fairies did when you picked them up? (laughs) (laughs) Kind of like they're like bugs or something. Throughout this movie, you'll hear Jareth call him a dwarf, but the novelization refers to him as a gnome. So I just want to point that out. He looks more like Uh, a gnome if you go off like D&D rules and stuff like that. I was fixing
1: to say, that's much more fitting.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm thinking dwarf as in this movie was made in 1983 and people called little people dwarves a yeah. lot. You know yeah, what I mean? Com- yeah, and common nomenclature. Yeah, yeah, so like I think maybe he just means it as, as a height reference in the time this movie was made. But Hago agrees to help her and he tries to give her lots of warnings and basically tell her that she takes shit for granted, right?
1: Oh, yeah. And she has a hard time learning lessons,
0: (laughs) but she heads into the labyrinth and she thinks it's not really a labyrinth because it doesn't have any turns. It's just long straight lines. And then she's like, right, maybe I'm just taking this place for granted. I'll just try to hoof it through it really quickly. (laughs) She quickly tires running through this place and takes a break uh, up against a wall Next to some bitchin' looking lichen with eyes, which were all puppets and look fantastic. <laughs> yes. And the most adorable little worm with a scarf that you'll ever see. And the worm teaches her that things are not always what they seem and to not take things for granted. And he lets her know that there's a passageway right in front of her. And the camera trick is really cool here. Cause it looks yeah. like one wall. And as she walks, you see her like go, Oh, and then she turns left and walks behind another wall. And she tries to go left and the worms like, no, 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 don't ever go that way. Go to the right. And <laughs> she goes to the right. And he's like, thank God she didn't go that way. Cause she would have went straight to his castle.
1: Dude. My favorite thing about the little worm dude is when she's like, did you just say hello? No, I said, hello. Hello. <laughs> close enough
0: and then he invites her in to meet the missus in this little wormhole (laughs) but Uh, some people talk on the internet like why was the worm deceiving her i think he was afraid she was gonna get hurt if she went to the goblin king's castle and he thought he was saving her he had no clue she was going to get her brother right oh totally totally agree but as she heads deeper into the labyrinth she can hear her brother crying and starts heading that way because she can see the castle off in the distance but i guess it's the long way around right And if you notice, you'll see Bowie's face hidden in rocks, walls, and trees throughout the entire labyrinth. And you can see like four or five of them right here when the camera pulls out. Yeah. Pretty badass looking. But we cut inside Jareth's castle, and we can see a room that had 40-something puppets in it. I want to say it was like 48. It was like 46 or 48 puppets, and they were ran by 53 engineers. And they said when he took all the puppets out of the room, the stage or the set looked like Swiss cheese because there were so many fucking <laughs> holes on the floor for people. And then like somewhere in between six and eight little people in goblin outfits also to do some dancing and jumping scenes. And I mean, yep. like they're pulling them on ropes and making them jump eight feet in the air. And then they throw fucking chickens and shit in there too. I know, like, I know. Let's go hey. for <laughs> more. And, uh, but the goblins are surrounding Toby and a bored to death Jareth and his terrifying Bowie Bulge because this is where it makes its first appearance. <laughs> and they break out into the fucking awesome magic dance song. Magic dance, magic dance,
2: magic dance, magic.
1: Dude, did you see the shit where he's tracking those vocals while
0: smoking? Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh but during that song you can hear the baby cooing right when jareth says something to him points and that wasn't the baby they had in the recording studio they had one of his backup singers babies in there and he said he tried everything he could to make this baby make a noise he said he it playing with it he said i even tried kicking it a couple times i don't know <laughs> if he was kidding or not but he said it wouldn't do anything so david bowie actually had to do the baby voice
1: he is a man of many talents
0: <laughs> i don't know this this seems awesome and and that's the one i was talking about where josh and i when we were kids were trying to learn the you remind me of the babe what babe the Babe power what power voodoo who do you do do what remind me of the babe and i fucking always thought that was hilarious as a kid and, and i still love it to this day
1: yeah i can remember getting grounded once where i was coming home you know straight lights come on go home back then All right, back in my day anyways um <laughs> And I was mad because I had to come home. And I remember I was putting my bike in the garage and I was layering it with F-bombs out of boredom. And it's like, you remind me of the fucking babe. What fucking babe? The fucking babe. And I get my bike put up and turn around. My dad's standing there. It's like, go to your room. I'm like, oh, shit. Because I was home late to boot. It was, that's one of my early memories from this
0: movie. (laughs) (laughs) So at this point, we cut back to Sarah and we see that she's trying to outsmart the labyrinth by using lipstick to draw arrows on the floor. Like on the tiles, right on the ground. And every time she runs off, these creatures start cussing and they either flip the tile over where you can't see the arrow or they spin it the other way around, right? That's the most
1: ingenious way to have somebody fuck with her directions, that they're mad. Oh, yeah.
0: You're defacing my property. <laughs> <is> so good. <laughs> and even those little goblins have a name. Like everything was drawn in the art book and given a name and a purpose.
1: Oh, damn. I don't remember what they were called, though. <laughs> To get off my lawn trolls. <laughs>
0: <laughs> one of the times she turns around and immediately notices the arrow was flipped the opposite way, and she starts complaining that this labyrinth isn't fair. <laughs> so there it is again. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but at this point she encounters two doors guarded by four goblin dogs. Like they kind of look like a playing card each, because like one of them is upside down, right? Yeah. Very Monty Python like scene here. <laughs> Goddamn the way right. they're talking. <laughs> But she's like, what? This was a dead end. And the goblins are like, no, the dead end's behind you. And they start laughing. And she turns around. And and she's like, oh, God, the labyrinth shifts around. What am I supposed to do? (laughs) And the doors let her know that one door leads to the castle. And the other one leads to certain death. (laughs) I want that one. (laughs) I know, right? And she has to figure out a riddle, basically, to know which door to go through. And I could never grasp this as a child, and I barely do now. But basically like one of them can only tell the truth and one of them lies or something. And she asks yeah. them the question in a way where she can confirm which one's the door but confuses the goblins because they don't remember which fucking one's the right door either. <laughs>
1: <laughs> They've just been
0: standing there for like 40 years. <laughs> right. And um she figures it out says that it's a piece of cake And then falls 40 feet down through a tunnel after she steps to the doorway (laughs) with hundreds of grabby hands that talk like puppet faces, grabbing her as she goes, right? Basically, Henson wanted these hands to be in the tunnel when she fell. And he had over 100 latex hands made that people had to wear, and they had to look like monstrous and arthritic and whatnot. And it's really neat on the documentary watching – him and his son trying to figure out how to make puppet faces with their hands. Right. And it was a really thought out process and they make faces with noses and everything that talked to her. And she wants to know which way is the right way to go up or down. And they're like, Oh, she said down and they drop (laughs) her and they let her down slowly. So she doesn't get hurt. Yeah. They're helping hands. Yeah. yeah, They're helping hands. Yeah. (laughs) Like I said, everything has a name here, but Jim Henson said that he felt terrible after they filmed the movie for all the stuff that he did. To, well, they called her Jenny at the time. To Jennifer Connolly, like that was an actual 40-foot drop. And they just had hands. People grab her. She went down so she wouldn't fall too fast and, and fall. And when she's on the castle edge later, she's on something. When she's hanging over the swamp, she's just hanging. And he's like, man, I, I can't believe I did all this to a 14-year-old. <laughs> but he put her in danger a lot. But basically, the helping hands drop her down, and she ends up in a oubliette, which... Hoggle's already down there and he has to explain to her what one is. She doesn't actually ask if you think about it. He just like, I guess they assumed that the audience didn't know what Oubliette was.
1: I still don't know (laughs) what it is. It's a fucking tunnel to me.
0: (laughs) uh, It's basically a dungeon that you have to fall into that doesn't have any doors. Uh, So it's like a pit, like you have to fall into it. And I know that because I played Dungeons and Dragons and shit growing up (laughs) and read lots of fantasy novels. I always loved fantasy, so I've read lots of fantasy novels. But you can see that Jareth is watching through one of his crystal balls to see where she's at. And he's upset that she's made it to the Oubliette because she shouldn't have been able to make it this far. And this is one of the times that he calls Hagel a dwarf. But he says that he was supposed to trick her and lead her back to the entrance so that she'd have to start over and get frustrated and quit. And he thinks it's hilarious and laughs and the goblins don't.
2: Well, love.
0: (laughs) But we cut back to Sarah and Hoggle and Hoggle is offering to help her out. And at this point, we know that Hoggle was only sent there by Jareth to, to trick her. Right. And we find out that he really likes trinkets and jewelry and she gives him a plastic bracelet that she has on as long as he'll take her as close to the center as he can get her. And he takes her through a door that he makes that's really badass. He just picks up a board off the floor and he puts it on the wall (laughs) and he opens it. He's like, oh shit, wrong room. You know, and he has to keep (laughs) opening it until it's the exit. Yeah. But it's really badass seeing like the goblin fae magic working in this room. But as they go through the door, they have to walk through the false alarm uh, stone walls, right? And they're like, faces in the walls. They're like, beware. This is the wrong way. And Hoggle's like, just ignore them. You know, (laughs) they're supposed to trick you and tell you the wrong thing. And he silences one of them. And and it's really upset because it hasn't got to say it in so long. And he's like, all right, I'll let you say it. But but it doesn't make me believe it. He's like, oh, thank you so much. (laughs) It's so funny. (laughs)
1: It feels like something that could have almost been in Princess Bride.
0: (laughs) Yes, yes. A lot of this could have been in Princess Bride. But as they walk out of the hallway, it goes down a hill, and we see one of Jareth's crystal balls come rolling down the hill, and it rolls into a goblin beggar's cup, right? And they walk up to the beggar, and the beggar stands up, and it kind of looks like a, a plague doctor mask, but it's actually Jareth, like in disguise or using illusion magic. But basically, Jareth is pissed at Hogwarts because he's helping sarah for real and he's supposed to be tricking her and he's saying all this in front of sarah right and i call him hogwart because they call him horrible hoggle i can't even remember everything hogwart like there's just different things that that jareth and sarah call him they can't ever get his name right but jareth threatens hoggle with the boga stench and he taunts sarah and says, I guess my labyrinth's a little too hard for you. And she lets him know that she thinks the labyrinth's easy, that it's a piece of cake. <laughs> and since it's so easy, he takes a bunch of time away from her, right? It was like four or five hours. Yeah. And if you notice, every time somebody says it's a piece of cake in this movie, shit goes downhill, right?
1: Well, because the cake is a lie.
0: <laughs> exactly. But once again, she says that this isn't fair. And even the Goblin King is catching on to her saying this all the time, because he wants to know what her basis for comparison is. (laughs) (laughs) I love that line. The way he says it is so matter of fact. Oh. But since she said the no-no word, Jareth has to juggle his balls, right? (laughs) And he starts juggling them again. We got the cool animation. And he chunks one down the tunnel, and it turns into this giant drill thing that comes chasing them down. And Hagel yells, oh, no, the cleaners. (laughs) And they have to run and narrowly escape. And this is one of the scenes where they about got Jennifer Conley, because it's actually two men running really fast with that thing. And even the cleaners have a backstory. They're actually not supposed to be in the tunnels, I don't think, but they're made to clean out the hedges. That's how the path gets made to the hedges. Okay. And it's just that, you know, the Goblin King summoned it to chase them down. But they, they escape through a collapsible wall, and I think there's a ladder, but Hoggle takes Sarah back up to the surface of the labyrinth out of the sewers where she takes his jewels from him. And she lets him know that he has to help her for real, or he can't get his jewels back, right? And at this point, we see Yoda walk up with Wait, what? a bird hat. it's a wise man it's a wise man but (laughs) frank oz does his voice and frank oz was yoda there you go and he sits down and he's got this weird it looks like part of his head It's just like a bird hat and it can also talk and um there's like riddles and clues involved and he doesn't really tell her a whole lot of anything but he passes out with fucking narcolepsy and sticks out (laughs) his like you know fucking tip jar and she gives him the ring that Hoggle really wanted earlier when he got the the plastic bracelet. He's a little pissed that she gave it to the cup because he didn't even help out. <laughs> and the backstory of that ring was it was supposed to be her mom's ring. And she like cherished it more than anything. And that's why she wouldn't give it to Hoggle. But now at this ah. point, she's like, I need to get I need to get my brother back. So she did it. But somewhere in here, she calls Hoggle her friend and he gets really happy about that because he's never had a friend before, he said, right? So he actually is getting attached to this girl as they go through, even though he's supposed to trick her. Yeah, but as they venture further into the labyrinth, they are startled by a beast growling and Hoggle runs away, scared like a coward. I'm surprised he didn't trip Sarah on his way out. (laughs) And Sarah decides that things aren't always what they seem in this place, and she should go check it out. She's learned another lesson. And when she goes in there, we see a large troll hanging upside down swinging and he's being tortured by goblins that have like these sticks with creatures holding on to them that like buy them or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And she's like, if only I had a rock or something. And he starts doing this like growling noise and this rock rolls up to her foot. And she's like, Oh, cool. A rock. And she pegs the goblins and it's very slap sticky with their helmets spinning around and they can't see and they hurt each other. And he keeps summoning rocks to her and she keeps throwing them at the goblins. I don't think you put two and two together But the goblins retreat, and she lets the troll down, and she finds out that his name's Ludo, and he's now joined the party. Okay,
1: and he sounds like Nick Cage's Ghost Rider.
0: Much no, he's he's so much more adorable (laughs) than that. Oh yeah, Ludo's a big teddy bear.
1: No, 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 I love him. I'm saying that Nick Cage's line in Ghost Rider (laughs) sounds like that, and it doesn't work.
0: (laughs) Um, But. We'll just have to see how, you know, actual Marvel fixes that catastrophe. Okay. That's <laughs> for another Marvel. episode. <laughs> well, that was bullshit. Um, I don't remember if it was Sony or what. made that Oh, movie, I know.
1: It, yeah, bullshit is the right word.
0: <laughs> Anyways, let's go anyway, back it's- to this fantastic film. Okay. But Ludo and Sarah go off into the labyrinth and they discover two doors with talking knockers on them. And I mean like knock the door knockers, not like talking boobs. And (laughs) I was like
1: say you watched a different cut of the film than I did.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And I don't remember how the riddle or clue works, but one of the knockers goes through the goblin's ear ears, right? And the other one he holds it in his mouth. So she talks to that one. He's kind of nice to her because he gets to rest his jaw a little bit. But that's the one she ends up making him take the, the knocker and she knocks the door and goes through it. And it leads into a forest area. And apparently, if you looked at their like sketched out labyrinth that they designed for the movie, they're still actually in the labyrinth. They're not in the woods. The labyrinth has different areas. It has like a sewer area and a forest area, and there's different levels to it, right? It's not just the hedge maze on top. But as we can see, Ludo's scared of the woods as they're walking through. And I I really feel like somebody says it's a piece of cake here. I might be wrong, but Ludo (laughs) ends up falling through like a trap door on the ground. And Sarah doesn't notice it and keeps walking. And then when she does realize he's gone, she starts to yell out for Ludo, and then she yells for Hoggle to help, and we cut to Hoggle leaving the labyrinth, but he can hear her, and he's like, Sarah, and he turns around to go save her, and Jareth appears and wants to know whose side he's really on, and Jareth gives Hoggle a poisoned peach, it's one of the crystal balls, when he tosses it turns into this peach, and he lets Hoggle know that if he ever lets her kiss him, he will make him a prince. The Prince of Stench, right? Like, he'll be the (laughs) Prince of the the Bog of the Eternal Stench, which we'll go into detail on that if you've never never seen this movie in a minute. Oh, it's creepy. (laughs) But as Sarah ventures further in by herself, she finds the Fire Gang, as they're called, and it's a group of fireys, and they sing a song to her about having fun and about how they can remove their body parts and play games with them. And this is a poorly aged... CGI scene, basically they had puppeteers in black felt suits controlling the puppets in front of a black felt background. And George Lucas had ILM or whatever version of a special effects team at the time digitally remove the, uh, black background with whatever shitty effects they had back then. I'm sure it looked great <laughs> then and substitute it with the forest. And it looks terrible. <laughs> it's like one of two, I can think of CGI scenes in the movie. They, they, age very very poorly um but the puppets are cool
1: yeah and it's uh either down chilling i think it's down chilling or chilling down is the name of the song and they're <laughs> they're 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 groovy man they're fucking yeah. groovy
0: <laughs> every song in this movie was written by bowie i believe yes including that one but basically she breaks the rules and takes one of their heads and chunks it so they chase her down because you can't throw somebody else's head you can only throw your own head and they want to take her head so they can throw hers so it'll be fair right it's kind of creepy but basically she runs into a dead end where she's saved by hoggle who's up on the wall and he throws a rope down and she rewards him with a kiss and then they fall and slide a bit and they land over the bog of eternal stench which is basically a swamp with rupturing anuses farting constantly
1: yeah those are definitely buttholes
0: i can't explain it any differently and there's lots of loud fart noises and uh yeah, I don't, there's nothing else I can say.
1: Yeah, that's it. <laughs> oh God, it's so nasty looking.
0: <laughs> it's very disgusting. You should have seen my kids' faces. Well, my son <laughs> thought it was hilarious. My daughter was like, oh, but uh, <laughs> anyways, after they get their footing over the uh, pool of diarrhea, Hoggle tries to give Sarah the peach that Jareth gave him, and he's really reluctant to do it. And the ground breaks out from under him and he falls. Sarah tries to save him and hold him and he ends up bringing her down with him. And they end up landing on top of Ludo, who is a man of many words. SMELL! SMELL But they try to cross this bridge where they're stopped by a fox named Sir Didymus with a sworn duty to guard the bridge, and no one may cross without his permission. And Hoggle, being the coward he has, takes off and runs past while Ludo and Sir Didymus engage in battle, right? And it's (laughs) ridiculous with the fox popping, you know, up here, down here, around, and on Ludo's back, and Ludo swatting him. But eventually, Sir Didymus yields to Ludo and calls him his brother-in-arms, right? And Sarah's like, hey, since he's your brother, we can cross now, right? And he's like, no, ma'am, I swore an oath that no one can pass without my permission, not even my brother. And then Sarah's (laughs) like, well, can you just give us your permission? And apparently he never thought of that. So he does, and Sir Didymus has joined the party.
1: Dude, this is so the Black Knight from fucking Holy Grail.
0: (laughs) It is, it is, it is. It really is, but... We now have a, uh, a larger group to go further in, right? This is just a, a DD and d campaign in the grand <laughs> scheme of things. And they try to cross this bridge that Didymus has been protecting for God knows how long. And uh, apparently because it was a hazard and the bridge collapses as Sarah's going across and she holds onto a branch so she doesn't fall in the bog of eternal stench. I don't think I said this earlier, but if the water... If we want to call it water, it's liquid diarrhea. Yeah, it is bud juice. <laughs> yeah, it's bud juice. <laughs> if it touches you, you will stink forever and can't wash it off, right? So she's trying not to fall in there. And Ludo does his moaning thing and rocks start rolling in from out of the woods and coming up out of the water. And they basically make diarrhea covered steps <laughs> that she can walk across that apparently do not make her shoes Or Ludo's feet stink like shit for eternity, for some reason. Ah. But anyways, Sarah makes it across, and we see Sir Didymus summon his loyal steed named Ambrosius, who is a dog that looks an awful lot like Merlin. And they head off across the little rock bridge, too. As they get to the other side, they run back into Heigel, who... Tries to throw the peach into the swamp until so he hears the Goblin King tell him in his head that he wouldn't do that if he were him, right? And he keeps the peach, and they journey further into the woods, and they all end up getting hungry. And Heigl decides to give Sarah the peach, and she takes a bite and realizes it tastes strange, and she realizes something's up, and she's probably been roofied. <laughs> and Hoggle does his thing and runs away like a coward again, right? Oh <laughs> we cut to Jareth doing his ball juggling thing again and he starts sending the balls out like they're bubbles into the air and the bubbles make it to Sarah, who's having a really bad trip in the woods, and she sees herself as the dancing princess from the music box in one of the bubbles. And Ludo and Sir Didymus, being the awesome knights that they are, make it quite a way away from her before noticing they've lost their ward. <laughs> they see a bubble float by, and they can see that Sarah's inside at a masquerade ball, right? And at this ball, she's like a princess, and she's going around looking for someone, and she's very attracted to this man that's Jareth, right? At the party with the mask, and he's in like a, a ball, like, like a fantasy tuxedo, whatever you call that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But they're attracted to one another and have a dance to a Bowie ballad. I do have to say
1: musically, this is my favorite song. Instrumentally, it's my favorite song in the movie, just because it's got that fucking Sonic the Hedgehog synth sound bass.
0: <laughs> I have a lot of fun with magic dance, but I'll let you know my favorite song when we get to it. Oh. But somewhere in here, Sarah realizes that she's not supposed to be at the ball and that she's forgetting to do something. And almost at a time because she sees a clock or something. So then she, I don't know, I think she picks up a chair and bursts the bubble and it makes her fall out of it. And she lands in a junkyard, right? And we can see bubbles floating past and we can see that Hoggle is somewhere else in this junkyard and he's upset about screwing over his only friend, right? Yep. Sarah wakes up on top. Well, I guess it's not really a pile of junk. It's on top of a bag lady, basically, but it's a junk lady. (laughs) And in the book and in the artwork book, her name's Agnes if you wanted to know. Okay. But the goblin bag lady collects all the shit and she has a lot of Sarah's shit on her and she's like, "Here, let me show you something. I know what you lost." and she opens a door and it's Sarah's bedroom in the middle of this junk pile and she takes Sarah in there and she's trying to distract her by giving her all of her favorite toys and things that are important to her and she's like, this is what you were searching for and if you look in her room, there's a poster that says the slashing machine and it's the cleaners that chased him down earlier. <laughs> but Sarah decides she was looking for something besides the toys and she picks up the Labyrinth novel and she remembers that her brother's missing and starts to break out of the room which starts to collapse in on her and she's pulled out of the junk by Ludo and sir didymus and they can see that they're right in front of the gates to the goblin city and it's really interesting if you look at the way agnes is stacking the shit on sarah it's like she's turning her into one of the junk ladies yeah on her back the same way and i know it was in the original script i can't remember if it was in the novel but originally agnes was supposed to be a puppet and jareth was controlling the puppet which is oh. kind of cool yeah that would have been neat so the party enters the goblin city I'd use my Dungeon Master voice, buddy. But uh, Wait, wait. Somebody's got to (laughs) roll. Yeah, roll for something, (laughs) god damn it. Um, But no, really, they enter the Goblin City, and it has a fantastic set of fountains which depict goblins pissing in the water. And if you look, the faucets for the fountains are coming right out where the junk would be. Yeah. It looks like goblin dongers pissing in the water. Which is how we were introduced to Hoggle the Gnome earlier. So it's not that that far-fetched, right? Yeah, it's a normal thing. But they enter the main gate, and it shuts and seals them in, but there's like a secondary gate in front of them that closes and turns into a giant iron golem with a battle axe. And it's got them cornered, and it's swinging at them, and all hope is lost until Hoggle drops down from above, takes the top off the golem, Throws the goblin out that's piloting it and uh, fucks with the controls, overloads it. And does the second shitty CGI scene in the movie with this weird <laughs> poof explosion thing <laughs> and takes the golem out. I do want to say it looks really fucking cool because the doors close, the gates or whatever, and each gate has half the golem. And when it locks together, it makes the golem suit and it walks out.
2: Yeah, that's and awesome.
0: Jim said he wanted a 15 foot tall fucking puppet for the scene. And they're like, people always ask for a 15 foot tall puppet. You can't make a giant puppet walk. We made it walk. <laughs> so it was actually a giant puppet that they actually made. That's badass. Challenge accepted. It looked great other than the uh poof, but but hey, I remember what the Death Star blowing up looked like before they digitally remastered that shit. Okay. So I'm
1: just saying. Oh, well, that is hilarious. I have a Death Star joke coming up later. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I always have Star Wars jokes up. It's not that that unusual for me. I'm curious to hear about yours, but they all let Hoggle know that they understand why he did what he did and that they forgive him. And Sarah even gives him his jewels back. And Hoggle has joined the party once again. Jareth somehow didn't know that they had made it all the way into the city until a guard runs in and tells him about it. And he decides to sound the bells, call to arms, send the goblin army in to hold them off. But she's wearing (laughs) it. And uh, what ensues is a ridiculous slapstick battle with goblin cannonballs. And I mean, literally goblins inside (laughs) cannonballs, dog jousting. And it's just I'm not going to go any more detail. It's just ridiculous. And chickens. Um,
1: (laughs) Why would the chicken walk towards the camera?
0: (laughs) Yeah. Jim said the rules were always don't work with small children or animals. And he did both in the same movie. And he said the chickens were the hard part. But basically, as this ridiculous battle unfolds and they start to get surrounded, Ludo saves the day again by summoning a bunch of giant rocks to take out the goblin army. We even get bowling effects on some of them, right? Where they like, <laughs> fly out in the air and it's like, strike. And uh, at this point, they're going to have fun storming the castle. <laughs> but the party finally makes it to the gates of the castle. And Sarah tells the team that she must go in alone. I don't fucking know why. But that's what she says, and Sir Didymus lets her know that should she ever need them, they'll always be there for her. Right? Oh, yeah, totally.
1: <laughs> I'm a I'm a little badass, and I fought off everyone, and I'll always be there for you.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, he he says the the one part endearing. You know? but yeah, he, he, he was he, full of himself. He really does. But no, he's
1: he's he's my favorite thing in the movie. He really is. (laughs) Especially when the surrounded is like, all right, I can see you've had enough. (laughs) Whatever the fuck he says, he's so good. He's
0: pretty fucking funny. But Sarah enters the castle alone into a tower of stairs, just like the Escher painting. And what follows is basically a Scooby-Doo chase scene with Jareth and Toby popping in and out of different doorways, upside down, sideways, up, below, like all over the place. Just like Nightmare on Elm Street (laughs) five. It's it's true this time. <laughs> yes, but Labyrinth did this five years before, okay? <laughs> but anyways, while this chase is going on, Bowie starts rocking out with an awesome song.
2: Just can be so, cruel. Just as I can be so cruel.
0: It it really does look cool though, because they did it all with practical effects. Like this room is really built for the most part as a giant set. And there's like a stunt double with metal shit on them, like holding them upside down under the stairs. They can flip up in front of her and cut her off. And they have different people walking in and out of different angles and babies on precariously dangerous perches held by (laughs) people, not their parents. And, Jim Henson assuring mom and dad, don't worry, I have people down there to catch him if he falls. They weren't <laughs> happy with that, so they had to cut some of the scenes out. But uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it looks really cool. It's my favorite scene in the movie, and that's my favorite Bowie song. Ah. But eventually, Sarah is able to evade Jareth in his awesome rock opera and get close to her brother, who is below her, like way down below her. And she jumps <laughs> off the edge and must've cast slow fall first because she slowly (laughs) falls down and lands next to her brother. And Jareth's down there and he's in his owl outfit. Right he looks like an owl in it and (laughs) he does he approaches her and she recites the ending of the labyrinth book and jareth tries to bribe her again with all our dreams i can give you everything you ever wanted look into the crystal ball
1: he also says some creepy shit he's like do all that i wish do all that i command and i'll be your slave like what you're
0: bad at manipulation dude (laughs) oh he's in love with her basically that's a big pedo joke oh uh, i'm
1: gonna leave that alone (laughs)
0: I'm going to go into it in a minute, so it's okay. Okay. <laughs> but at the last second, Sarah realizes that Jareth has no power over her, and he and his giant bulge transform into the owl from earlier and fly far, far away. Um, she now appears back at her house at the stroke of midnight and runs upstairs and finds Toby sleeping in his bed. She decides to give him the stuffed bear Lancelot, showing that she's learned her lesson and has grown up now. And she goes into her room, sad, and starts to put away her labyrinth book and some of her toys that we've seen referenced throughout the film. And she even packs up the photos of her mom and the real Bowie. But she hears her dad and stepmom come home downstairs. And as she gets up to go greet them, her friends pop up around her in her room and they let her know that they're there for her. If she ever needs them. Right. And she lets them know that she needs them now. And apparently this was an invitation to a magic dance party and everyone pops up, including the goblin army in her room dancing. And we fade to credits and we see the owl fly out past her window. And as a child, I thought this ending meant that it really did happen. Right. Like she made it home. She saved her brother. She sees Heigl in the mirror and has the conversation. And when he's like, "Oh, you really do need me," they all come and, and party with her, right? Yeah. But watching it as an adult, I realized that she imagined the whole fucking thing. And I read where Henson confirmed this.
1: Well, and and that makes total sense because I'm I'm the same as you. As a kid, I thought, "Oh wow, it real it really is real. They're in the real world." And now it's like, this is the book. It's the book. It's what she's been reading. It's what she's been been working on. This is her acting out the whole thing in her head while she's bored as shit watching the baby.
0: (laughs) Well, and there's this huge backstory about apparently the play or the book was called something different originally besides the labyrinth and David Bowie's character like wrote and directed the play and her mom was a stage actress and she left the whole family for this man. Ah. had an affair and left the family, and that's why there's a stepmom in the picture now, and that's why she has pictures of Bowie and her mom in her room because ah. she idolizes this man, right? And he ends up being Jareth, and I'm about to mix some stuff up. I'm sure partially from the original script and partially from the novelization. But apparently, I I think this was just like in the novelization or at least an original planned ending. She woke up on the floor originally, like she fell and hit her head.
1: Oh, okay.
0: Like when the power went out and that was to confirm that she dreamt the whole thing. Right. But they decided to leave it ambiguous. But the script was originally much darker. And like I said, Terry Jones originally wrote it and then it went through other hands and back to Terry Jones to make it funny again. And, and if you look at the original script, David Bowie's character, the author of the play, actually showed up at her house after her parents left. And her dad had warned her not to talk to strangers. And she lets him in the house. And he's talking about how there's a local production for the play. And he's looking for some young talent. And he's actually like a magician. and He's doing scarf tricks and pulling balls out and trying to like, okay, I don't know if seducer is the right word, but like all that happens. And that's how she ends up. You know, I don't know if in that version they were trying to make the labyrinth like more of a magical place, and he actually took her there. But there was a lot of that going on. The only other interesting thing from from the original script was the original ending, and I wish they would have kept it. During the confrontation, she gets into it with Jareth, and she ends up, I think, punching him some. they actually actually getting a little bit of a physical fight. And somewhere in there, she says something really insulting to him. Like, you're just a goblin like them or something. And he's like, oh, no. And he shrinks down and he's actually an ugly goblin. And he was like oh. using a glamour to make him look like a this badass rock star. And that's how she defeated him. She made him turn back to his true ugly form. And huh. I think that might have been a cooler ending. But yeah. the ending that we got... It almost looked like Jareth was never a bad guy to begin with. Cause like when she says all this before he turns into the owl, he actually smiled at her, right? Like almost like a winking smile. And it's like, good. You learned the lesson. Yeah. I was here to teach you. So that's like a very Jim Henson ending, right? (laughs) Totally. It's a different movie depending on which one of those endings you got, right? Yeah. I still
1: like it. Of course, like you said, we both saw it when we were young. I remember being a kid and being the, the helping hand scared me. And then the the dude, The little dudes ripping off their heads and, and throwing the heads around and like, oh, hers don't come off yeah, that those guys creeped me the fuck out.
0: The fireys actually always annoyed me, even when I was a child. But the really? helping hands, yes, scared me every time. Huh? One last interesting fact before we move on. Scott Derrickson. The director and co-writer of the two sinister movies is set to direct the Labyrinth sequel for TriStar Pictures. Like in the past couple of months, officially announced. And it seems like I was really clever in the planning all of these episodes. Because originally <laughs> originally Fetty was gonna do the Labyrinth remake, which turned into a sequel, and he decided not to do it. And then they went to Scott, who did Sinister. So we just talked about both these directors, and they both were attached to Labyrinth, but I'm not that clever. This was all a coincidence. <laughs> But no. fuck, yeah, I want to see it. I saw <laughs> Dr. Strange. I want to see his direct sequel to Labyrinth.
1: Yeah, I don't know where it would go, and, and I'm okay with that. So that would be uh, quite interesting.
0: I have no clue if it's just going to be same thing kind of happening to a different family. I'd be interested to see Sirius child be taken and she have to go back into the Labyrinth again.
1: Hey, that's, I like that.
0: (laughs) I have no clue if that's the plan. I'm sure Jennifer Conley would do it though. I don't know why I feel that way, but I just feel (laughs) like she knows like her career started there and she would do it. I don't know why. After seeing her in Snowpiercer, I just, I can see her in like genre flicks. Okay. But we've had a bit of cutesy dark fantasy and now we got to move into a little bit of a darker dark fantasy with 1985's legend.
1: Yeah, the story of a forest lad in a green tunic who, with the help of elves and guided by a fairy, discovers a sword, shield, and armor, and traverses a dark and dangerous path to defeat the demon lord and save Princess
0: Zelda. Lily. Lily. (laughs) (laughs) This really sounds like like another D&D adventure again. And I feel like one of us should have done this entire episode in a Dungeon Master voice, and it's a missed opportunity. (laughs) So yeah, Legend,
1: 1985, I make the Zelda joke because it's the closest thing we've ever had to a Zelda movie and that one has nothing to do with the other. People on the internet think they do because of the year that the original Legend of Zelda came out and it's like, look, you people, these were being made at the exact same time. (laughs) And and Shigeru Miyamoto was not on set or anything, all right? Um, (laughs) But uh, of course, directed by Ridley Scott, who did Alien and Blade Runner, you know, and early in his career too, and this, so... What happened here? Well, we'll get to that. (laughs) That's
0: what I want to know.
1: It was written by William Hortzberg, who didn't do much. He did like three films. Really? Yeah. And uh, he actually passed away in 2017. And we've got Tom Cruise as Jack. And this is in between Risky Business and Top Gun.
0: (laughs) Oh, I didn't know that. I thought this was his first film.
1: Nope. That was a rumor, huh? Okay. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah, just barely his second. And we've got Mia Sarah as Lily Sloan fucking Peterson herself. Oh yeah. Tim Curry is darkness, which is really neat how he ended up getting into this movie. And what do I say about Tim Curry? Even if it's a small part, you always remember the guy he's just watch Rocky horror picture show. Everyone should watch Rocky horror picture show.
0: <laughs> I so badly wanted to see the darkness say it's a red herring in this film. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't Clue, stress right? that enough yeah that's from Clue okay. but like every time I see him talking I'm just on him and go it's a red herring <laughs> and it would have been fantastic um, the only other person that I'm going to mention
1: because it's so odd is Robert Picardo as Meg Mucklebones and we'll get to that because he's in like 80 bazillion episodes of Star Trek Voyager and really? I think he, yeah and I think he has 233 acting credits right now because he's Jesus just, he's a He's in a lot of shit. The practical effects in this movie. Oh my God. It's Rob yep. Bottin who for my entire life, I've pronounced Rob Bottin and I've now been corrected after <laughs> watching interviews, you know, the howling, the thing, the fog, RoboCop, total recall and I'm leaving shit out.
0: So he's a fucking amateur.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Total amateur. <laughs> uh, especially the Sounds thing, Sounds like man. practical effects <laughs> king to me. He is. And he fucking just dropped off the radar. Really? Years ago. Anyways, his work in this movie is absolutely fucking fantastic. So I do have quite a bit of behind the scenes before we go into it. And then once we get into it and I have to start off with the first time I saw this movie because I was eight. And (laughs) there's a lot of things I don't vividly remember. But this I'll always remember because I was bouncing back and forth between this weird movie that I didn't know what it was and like a Formula One race. And I just kept going back and forth and like some scenes I'd come back and I'm like, this is dumb. And some scenes I'd come back and be like, is this the same movie? And uh, my parents had a friend named Cece that we went over to his house for dinner one time and I was told I could borrow a movie. And this guy literally had a movie collection where you went into one room and it was set up like Blockbuster. There were stands, (laughs) I mean, in fucking aisles and everything. And I saw the cover of the movie and I'm like, this looks familiar. And I flip it over and there's a shot of Lily reaching out to the unicorn. And I'm like, I saw that shit. Like, (laughs) this is the movie I'm going to borrow. And I borrowed it. And that was the first time I actually watched it all the way through. And it's stuck with me since then.
0: Did you happen to see this in Labyrinth around the same time?
1: I can't remember... When in my youth, I saw Labyrinth first. I just know uh, I was okay. young. I was young enough for those hands and the the fire, whatever's to scare me.
0: <laughs> I, I saw both of them close enough together that they're always linked in my mind. Like when I was older as a teenager and I'd go back and I'd want to watch one of these movies, I always put the other one in immediately after. <laughs> gotcha.
1: Now, Hortzberg had actually been writing fairy tale stories in his spare time for fun when he was oh. brought this to write. And he's like... This is perfect. I'll go ahead and start working something up. Now, it was originally written to be like ginormous in scale and scope, and he was told, no way. There's no way to get a budget to do this. You're going to need hundreds of millions of dollars. You have all these armies and these battle scenes and large scale fantasy movies don't get big budgets because nobody watches them. When Lord of the Rings came out, Ridley Scott was all <laughs> like, you see you fuckers? This, this is what I wanted. And there really was an interview like that that he wasn't talking like that, but he said the scale and scope of what he saw in his mind, he never saw on screen until yeah. Lord of the Rings. And that kind of makes sense if you look at the watered down $25 million version <laughs> that we ended up with.
0: I would love to see this movie remade with modern special effects and a big budget. Yeah. Entire goblin armies fighting and shit to be badass.
1: Yes. Mia Sara was, of course, 15 when they shot this movie. And it's ironic as shit that she auditioned for Labyrinth and didn't get the part, but then ended up married to Henson.
0: <laughs> I didn't know she auditioned for Labyrinth. That's fucking fantastic.
1: Yep. Now, once it was done, Ridley Scott kept freaking out and recutting the movie. So it the first pass was two and a half hours. And we ended up with the director's cut at 114 minutes, the European version at 94 minutes and the dumbass Americans version at 89 minutes. <laughs> and there's a whole story behind all that, that. I'm not going to go into for the sake of time. Scott and Cruz both prefer the director's cut, which I'm not going to go into a full breakdown scene by scene. There are some things I'm going to mention, but anybody who wants to go down the whole rabbit hole of the four different versions of the movie and all the crazy shit with that, just get online and look for the legend FAQ and you can find everything, the original scripts, all that
0: shit. Plus you can find the theatrical cut and the director's cut available to purchase and watch.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. The They first did it on the Ultimate Edition DVD put out in 2002, and that was the first time that anybody got in the States to see the movie with the original Jerry Goldsmith score because that's what it was tracked with. That's what it was going to be. And then towards as they got closer to release, Scott's like, fucking Americans aren't going to get this. Uh, I need a rock and roll score. And went to Tangerine Dream and said, you got three weeks. Score this movie. <laughs> and that's
0: what happened. Isn't Jerry Goldsmith the poltergeist guy, though? Yes. Of course,
1: can't bring up this movie without bringing up the fire because they were filming on the 007 stage which at the time was the largest sound stage in Europe and one of the largest sound stages in in the world and they built the set so high that they had to remove all the light rigging in this fucking uh sound stage and put it above the girders. And there's a lot of theories that all those lights being up there and how much gas they used in a few scenes were the cause of the fucking fire. Ah. <laughs> This is crazy. So, Tim Curry getting into this movie.
0: <laughs> I can't wait to hear this.
1: So, somebody told him to check out Richard O'Brien, who wrote and is riffraff in Rocky Horror Picture Show, mm-hmm. to look at him to play Meg Mucklebones. He's like, okay, I'll watch the movie. And he's watching the movie and he's like, I want this guy. I want this guy for darkness. I, fuck this guy. Fuck Meg. I want this guy. <laughs> and that's why he's like. He's so over the top and so theatrical and so dramatic without it feeling there. You know what I mean?
0: And that's right. That's Tim Curry. That's Tim Curry <laughs> to a T no matter if it's this because he's fantastic as darkness or if it's Clue or God damn there was a one of those Power Ranger knockoff shows we watched when we were kids and he was the bad guy in it. Yes. What was that a
1: big. Either VR Troopers or Big Bag uh, Beetleborgs or something.
0: I thought it was the Superhuman Samurai Cyber Squad bullshit. Yeah,
1: yeah, I keep forgetting about that one.
0: (laughs) (laughs) There was a lot of them, guys. But yeah, he was the bad guy. And it's because he can do that voice. That's all you need. He was Pennywise the fucking clown. The good one.
1: Anyways, one last quick neat thing here. The guys who missed out on playing Jack were Johnny Depp, Jim Carrey, and Robert Downey Jr.
0: I could have saw Johnny Depp doing it.
1: I know right. Like but not not Jim Carrey. Captain Jack down. before Captain Jack. <laughs> Goes without saying I'm covering the US theatrical release. That's 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 where <laughs> I'm going with this. And we're going to open up with something that was only in that release. And it's a crawling prologue explaining And I'm going to summarize this, explaining that the world we're being thrown into, just like Legend of Zelda, you know, the crawling prologue in Legend of Zelda. Anyways, I don't have a lot of that in here. I promise those are the only two. Well, there's a third one. Anyways. Fucking (laughs) Zelda
0: and Nightmare on Elm Street with you.
1: Yes, but this time I'm actually serious. (laughs) But they were worried that the U.S. audience wasn't going to understand just being thrown into it and weren't sophisticated enough to get it. So I guess that's what they thought for Star Wars. We need a crawl at the beginning to explain where we are in the middle of the story. (laughs) And it explains that darkness remains in the shadows, retreating from the light. And, uh, this light is harbored in the souls of unicorns. And Jack is a character who can talk to the unicorns because he's pure enough to do it. And that there's a girl named Lily who loves Jack and from the struggle to maintain the balance of good and evil comes the birth of legends. If I did the whole thing, it'd take forever and a day, but there you go. Darkness, light, pure, good, and evil. Let's move on.
0: I mean, it's almost the biblical story, right? Yes. God creating light to banish the darkness and I, I mix up the, the versions of the movie because I've seen them both but there's even scenes with darkness talking to father and you, yes. you know you wonder who it is
1: yes but anyways so <laughs> we see Keith Richards running around in this huge dark forest and I make that joke because it's Blix and when they were doing the makeup it actually got brought up. It's like this is kind of starting to look like Keith Richards. Like, go with it. Just do <laughs> do Keith Richards and then make it creepy. And that's what they did. I love the way Blix looks. Blix looks fucking awesome. Yeah. And uh, Alice Payton, I believe his name, of the actress that played her, him, it, whatever, <laughs> Blix. I'll probably refer to Blix as a he, well, especially because of the derogatory things about females that the Blix character says. So, <laughs> I'm presuming Blix is supposed to be male.
0: I feel bad. There was actually an actress that wore the hoggle suit and was the body actress and someone else did the voice and they had puppets control the face. And I forgot to say that. I feel bad.
1: (laughs) Oh my God. Did you see the thing where the animatronic head was found in some luggage unclaimed luggage in an airport like this
0: year? The whole suit was found. It wasn't just the 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 whole costume and it's in the, uh, it's in like a museum at the airport.
1: Yeah, the unclaimed baggage museum, but he's all rotted away and like fucking yeah, zombied yeah. out looking. This shit's nuts. Yeah, I saw it. But uh Blix is making his way to this great evil tree that Darkness resides in. And inside we see some cannibals prepping dinner in the kitchen while Darkness mm-hmm. watches. And that's really we're seeing this guy get beat and chopped up. It's pretty fucked up. PG movie.
0: I did not let my kids watch this one with
1: me. (laughs) But Blix enters and Darkness sends him on a mission to destroy these creatures that he senses in the forest.
0: What do they look like, Lord?
2: Let this serve to remind you. The creature is crowned with a single spiral reaching like an antenna straight to heaven.
1: I get the point, Lord. And Blix is to bring Darkness the Alicorns. And innocence is the only bait. So we've got our setup. Let's go. Did you say alicorn? Yes. What is an alicorn? An alicorn is the proper name for the horn of a unicorn. Oh, I didn't know that. And it was later spun into the proper name for a winged unicorn or a pegasus with a horn. I prefer pegacorn. I think it just sounds funny. (laughs) (laughs) Okay.
0: You learn something new every day. The more you know,
1: (laughs) it is referred to as an alicorn in the movie. So inner Lily and we're seeing her and this forest. It's huge. Like, I'll get into it at the end. But if you haven't seen this movie, it's the set and the artwork and the makeup. And that's about it. That's and Tim Curry. That's why (laughs) you need to see this. Everyone needs to see this movie.
0: It's not for Tom Cruise's acting.
1: It is not. But uh Lily is going to visit Nell and she's already being tracked by the goblins. So now we've got Blix, Pox, and Blunder. And those are great stage names for a punk band. <laughs> Once Lily is inside Nell's, she looks up at this clock and she has this vision of it frozen in ice.
0: Foreshadowing. <laughs> I'm giving you one. I didn't realize it was frozen in ice.
1: It's It's only for a brief second and it's completely cut out of the director's cut. So she's like stealing fucking biscuits and stuff off the table when Nell comes in and uh, she's like, oh, why are you visiting us poor folk? You know, it's real obvious she's a fucking princess. And she tells her that neither a country proverb or king's command can keep her from the woods today. And she heads off in search of Jack. And literally, we see her wandering around the woods and she's all Jack. Jack. (laughs) like that's literally what she says and then he jumps out of a tree (laughs)
0: literally mission impossible flipping all
1: (laughs) not yet (laughs) but close and we get a quick montage of the two and they're making out and talking to the animals and lily flashes this charm at jack and it catches the sunlight and reflects it on his face foreshadowing (laughs) i'm sorry guys (laughs) And Jack says that there's something very special that he wants to show her, but they have to hurry because they'll only be here for a short time. And he blindfolds her and he leads her to this creek. Meanwhile, the goblins follow. So down this creek, we see two unicorns make their way all the way up the creek towards them. And they're frolicking about. And the goblins notice this.
2: Look, ugly
1: one-horned mule. She, of course, asks Jack, you know, do you speak their language? Because he's the one who talks to the animals. And he's like, they only express love and laughter. And as long as they roam the earth, evil can never harm the pure of heart. And Lily says, hold my beer. (laughs) (laughs) And she does, man. She goes walking out towards the unicorns. And Jack's like, Lily, don't. And she just keeps walking. And he's just like, all right, fuck it. And just walks off into the woods. (laughs) (laughs) And she kind of lures the stallion to her as it calms down. And reaches out to touch it, and it keeps still long enough to allow Blix to shoot it with a poison dart. Now, in the director's cut, which I'm glad you've seen it too, the stallion actually freaks out, and Lily's cowered down in the water. Yeah. And she has to sing to it to get it to calm down.
0: Because we see earlier in the director's cut that she's like a Disney princess, and she can sing to animals. She does it multiple times leading up to this scene, right? Yeah, because
1: it shows more of Jack teaching her... That his ways and and how to do shit but we're finding out that she's more powerful than we're led to believe because you know she's she's innocence she's pure yeah. nothing's blocking her channeling she's she's fucking doing this shit
0: that was one of the scenes i preferred i liked watching her like sing to lull the unicorn in which makes her kind of more guilty of what happened in a way right
1: i'll save it for the end i have okay. i have i have my opinions i'm a dirty american that sounded nastier than it was supposed to
0: but at any rate <laughs>
1: So the unicorns fucking go running off, freaking out, and the goblins give chase, and Lily wanders back up to Jack, and Jack scolds her. He's, like, really pissed off. He's like, what you've done is strictly forbidden.
2: I only wanted to touch one. Where's the that?
1: Just the end of the world as you know it, Eve, because that's, like you said, that's the, there's a lot of what we're seeing here is, like, this is the devil, this is Eve, Mm she does what's mm -hmm. forbidden. Like, it really feels like it pulls from the biblical story, which fairy tales do all the time. I'll leave it at that. (laughs) So there's a line in there where he's like, you risk your immortal soul. And uh, I think in the uh, director's cut version, no, no, no. He's, he says, what you've done is strictly forbidden. And she's like, I don't care. You risk your immortal soul talking like that, but it's chopped down so much in the American version. It's just like, I only want to touch one. So these storm clouds immediately start rolling in. And Lily immediately starts wooing Jack like she's done nothing wrong, like trying to kiss him and shit. And he's like, I'm scared you're going to fucking steal my heart. And uh, she's like, you know, oh, no, then steal your heart. You know, she's really laying it on thick. And she takes off this ring and she's like, don't you wish this was our wedding ring? I have a right to set a challenge for my suitors and I will marry whoever finds this ring. She throws it off a fucking cliff (laughs) (laughs) and it's down to the water below and Jack immediately dives in after it.
0: And she's surprised for some reason.
1: Yeah, I know, right? Like, he called her bluff. And in the wide shot, that's actually a 10-year-old boy doing the dive and Ridley Scott's daughter standing in for Mia (laughs) Sara. Or Lily. And so, as Jack battles gators down below, which I'll explain in a second... (laughs) the world above begins to freeze over in this horrible snowstorm. And we also see that the goblins who have been chasing the unicorns make it to them and the stallion has collapsed and Blix, it's a real dramatic shot and there's all these like rose petals and everything and it it looks gorgeous, but it's so dark what's happening at the same time. (laughs) Just as Blix chops the alicorn off uh, Jack busts through the top of the now frozen pond with no ring. And I made the gator joke because as soon as you see him underwater, that was all shot in Florida and there were literally gators 20 feet away from them the entire time. And the local guide, swamp guy, whatever was like, he's like, oh, don't mind them and they won't mind you. <laughs> I'm like, okay, let's get the shot. Imagine Tom Cruise doing that today. I know he hangs on airplanes and shit, but something tells me you couldn't put him that close to gators these days.
0: <laughs> I don't know. His uh, next movie is going to space, man. oh
1: wait for real
0: yes like he teamed up with nasa okay like he's shooting part of it in space nice doing the stunts
1: so while all it's weird while fucking jack is underwater and shit starts to go sideways lily just buggers off and she wanders off to nell's and uh once she goes inside she finds nell and her husband frozen solid and the goblins come in behind her but it's cool because she hides upstairs and Blix is playing with the alicorn he's like making the fire go and breaking stuff on the table and slinging chairs around and shit and through conversation you know he's bragging and it's like it was me who shot the poison stinger and it's like that's only because prince beauty bade the beast and blah 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 and she's learning that like oh fuck this is bigger than than Jack was right. (laughs) That's what she's learning while she's sitting upstairs. And as they ride away, she looks out the window and vows to make it right and follows the goblins. Meanwhile, Jack is collapsed in the snow and he's next to a fire that kind of poofs up. And he's awakened by Una, Gump, Screwball and Brown Tom. And Gump is a little forest elf who immediately starts giving Jack shit because he's like, Hey, you notice anything odd happened today, Jack? You know these woods as well as we do. Did you see anything (laughs) untort? And Jack admits that he took Lily to see the unicorns. You did what? And then he's all like, oh, no, Gump, it's worse. She touched one. I
0: know, I know. He's not like sugarcoating it or like hiding any of it. He just lets her rip.
1: Yeah. And of course Gump freaks out. He's like, you know, what, what a mortal laid hands on a unicorn? And Jack's like, But I did it for Lily.
0: I did it for love.
1: And and Gump's like, Well, love, that's another matter. Right. You know, like, let's all have a toast and we'll go off to set this right. And it's it sounds like I'm making fun of it, but it is so fairy ish. That's it. Is. It really is. And that's how this stuff these are these are the trigger objects in these kind of stories, and that's how it happens.
0: They are really broken up, though, when you see, like, the extended versions of the scenes. Like, some of them do not feel as jarring if you can see all of it. Yeah. Some of the deleted scenes take away from the movie or too cheesy, but some of them I feel like added to the story.
1: Yeah, this one, the whole thing that was cut in this version with the fairy dance and kind of introducing the characters, it felt more fairytale ish. Yeah. Um, Things do feel a bit abrupt here, especially with how over the top Gump is with you've done fucked everything up. You know, (laughs) let's (laughs) have a toast. You don't (laughs) get the
0: playtime into the pissed into the, oh, it's love. You just get like, it's just like emotion, emotion, emotion. And it's even more like disturbing because the wrong voice is coming out of the body.
1: Yeah, I'm getting to that. (laughs) And it was also originally that Gump made uh, Jack solve a riddle before they would do anything. Mm -hmm, But that's completely mm -hmm. gone in the U.S. version. So I do want to point out two things. Una is a light on fishing line. Oh, take that CGI.
0: (laughs) (laughs) This sounds like something we made in a basement.
1: (laughs) And, uh, And Gump is voiced by Alice Payton, who was Blix. Yep. And the reason this happened was because I should have wrote down David Bennett, something like that. I'm, I I'm maybe mixing up with someone else's name.
0: I think it's Bennett.
1: Is the actor. You know he was only 19 in that? I thought it was like a 14-year-old kid. I thought he was younger, <laughs> too. But uh, when they were done with the movie, a Universal executive didn't like David Bennett's German accent. And he's like, you can't do this. That's a fucking Nazi. Like, that's what Jesus. he told Ridley. Yeah, that's what he told Ridley Scott. It's like okay, we'll dub his voice. But what's funny is the whole fucking movie ended up being dubbed because this main soundstage, they fucking built everything, set up all these fans and released all these animals. Like, (laughs) it's all real and they all just lived in the fucking studio. Now, security guards (laughs) saw him take off when the fire happened, and that was actually why the security guard was like, shit's going down. I should go look. And he walks in. He's like, that's why all the animals ran out. The place is fucking exploding. But I think it's, it's just wild that you know all the shit was dubbed. And you can't unhear Blix and Gump as far as them both being Alice once you know.
0: Right. And <laughs> if, I, if I remember correctly, I think in the German version of the movie, they're reversed. Like he does Blix's voice, yep. right? Or something like that. I don't remember exactly what it was.
1: Yeah, I th- I'm I'm pretty damn sure that's spot on. So they set out on their quest, and they stop to apologize to the mayor. Well, Jack goes to apologize to the mayor, and he cries glitter. Now, I want to point out there is so much glitter in this movie. There's there is, on the and trees. I don't know why it's on the snow because Ridley Scott liked the way it looked when you light it right. He's like, you know, how sometimes real snow it it almost glistens it's like, you can tell, it's like, we started there. Somehow we ended up here. Cause I'm just like, <laughs> what does the scene need? Glitter, glitter. <laughs> and that's what they did.
0: <laughs> the first time I noticed it was on Lily. And I like the idea of the fair princess, you know, having, having the glitter on her. And then yeah. I'm like, is she innocent? We're hurting Jack fucking. <laughs> is that why he's got the glitter on him? You know. Yeah. What I
1: mean? <laughs> well, then you start to realize it's like, there's glitter on that tree. There's glitter on that stump. This <laughs> like, holy shit. I think to this day, sometimes Tom Cruise wipes his ass and it's like, still got glitter. Because that shit is the, <laughs> it's the herpes of the art world, man. Once you unleash it on people, they have it forever.
0: Oh, I have a five-year-old daughter that loves glitter.
1: <laughs> so sometimes you wipe your ass and find glitter.
0: <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
1: so we find out that the mayor has told Jack that they're cursed and they must return the alicorn for everything to be set back to normal. So once he tells Gump and the others that that's what the mayor's telling them, Gump's like, well, we need a champion, one that is pure of heart and blah, 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 blah. And everybody's got to look on their face. Like, how are we going to do that? And Gump points at Jack and he's like, you'll do. <laughs> it's like, but, but Gump, I know nothing of weapons. And he's like, it's cool. I know a place this way. And they head off to this cave. <laughs> but, uh, Jack, and Una are the only ones allowed to enter. It's like, Jack, you can enter. We can't. Una will guide the way. And they leave Brown Tom behind to guard the mare because she's the last of her kind. She's the last remaining living unicorn. So in this cave where uh, Jack is going to retrieve the master sword and some sweet bottle cap armor.
0: Do you know how much that shit would be worth in the Fallout world? What's Fallout? Um, a huge video game franchise.
1: Uh, oh, is that the one with like the, the 50s looking kid thing?
0: Yeah, the pit boy. Yeah, 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 yeah okay 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 i guess you've never played one they use bottle caps no. as currency <laughs> uh, it's the only currency they have
1: okay so he'd be loaded in all seriousness his that's how they made the prop guy made the armor just like smashed a bunch of bottle caps and fucking weaved them together it's like you <laughs> fucking paint it it's like was it what's it missing scott glitter And they put some glitter on it and put it on camera.
0: (laughs) Honestly, it looks pretty cool. And and it doesn't look like smash bottle caps to me. I read that, but I immediately thought of fallout when I, when I did
1: check this out. So when I ran across that, I'd watch it like three more times after that look lower. What they did is the ones that look the most pristine are near his face. And if you go lower and lower on the armor, you start seeing the pointy edges of the bottle caps. Oh,
0: you start seeing the BL caps and shit. <laughs> yep, exactly. If you also look lower, you notice that for some reason he only needs to cover the torso of his body. His legs and arms are open game.
1: Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, well he doesn't know how tall darkness is, but whatever. <laughs> it's a tunic, man. That's how tunics are. That's how they work. <laughs> He's in his tiny whiteies. Oh, yes. (laughs) But while in the cave, Una reveals that she can turn into a human. And uh, not only that, but she can turn into anything Jack's heart desires. But she makes him, well, she doesn't make him swear. She makes him promise not to share the secret, especially with Gump. So meanwhile, you know, the goblins have their alicorn and their mission was to bring this shit to darkness. And they stop and fuck about in this cave. And Blick starts to go drunk with power and like there's this fire in the cave and he's all like higher, higher, burning fire, making music like a choir. And that's like Blix, like totally like this is me now. And uh, he has the fucking elder wand. What would you do? (laughs) Exactly. And uh He's got like just starting to go mad with power. Like, I'm the best, fuck all y'all. And he's going on this rant. And he has his back to this one side of the cave. And uh, Pox is all like, Blix, 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 what big D? <laughs> <laughs> I love that they used big
2: D there. <laughs> yeah,
1: so <laughs> Blix throws the alicorn and spins around. And uh, you don't really see darkness, he's shrouded in a shroud <laughs> and uh, blunder picks up the alicorn and is like hear me you angel of darkness and your reign is over it is our world and he makes it like that far and darkness just zaps the alicorn out of his hand and a mummy springs to life next to him hugs his ass and just walks straight off into a hole that leads to the underworld
0: <laughs> Blix knew better Blix didn't do that shit
1: but then, of course, Blix comes back with, the, you know, darkness, yo, know, goblins are outspoken and, and I like to encourage their initiative. <laughs> Blix is so fucking funny in this movie, man. Blix
0: is one of my favorite, like, movie villains of all time. <laughs> I really mean that. I will say, before I had seen the director's cut, it's, it's really odd to me that they don't show darkness in that scene and then he's shrouded. And then you watch the director's cut and find out that the original cut and the director's cut, you hadn't actually seen darkness exactly to this point you know so but the whole scene is just fucking wonderfully done the the goblins might be my favorite part of the movie
1: (laughs) so um darkness asks are the unicorns dead and uh blix is like yeah totally and he's like you lie (laughs) the fucking sun's coming up (laughs) and uh pox is like well the mayor still lives and uh And Blix is like, but we killed the stallion. You know, the mayor has no power. She's a female.
2: Only the power of creation.
1: So, obviously, they're being told to go back and get the fucking Alicorn off the mayor. And in the beginning, Darkness said, get both of them. So, Blix done fucked up. I don't know why Blix gets to continue to lead the posse at this point, but I'll leave that where it is.
0: Because he looks legit as
1: fuck. (laughs) Keith Richards. (laughs) while all this shit's going down in the cave lily's at the entrance to the cave watching so she takes off and goes to warn brown tom and as soon as she finds the goblins are coming back for the mayor they're already getting shot at by arrows and lily runs around brown tom and brown tom does his best to defend everybody with his frying pan (laughs) but he gets too (laughs) cocky you can't beat me
0: you just can't beat
1: arrow in the head (laughs)
0: it's so slapsticky and awesome at the same time
1: yes and then the goblins come up and snare the ladies in a net and by ladies i mean lily and the mayor so after all this the others arrive to quote-unquote dead brown tom
0: that's what i call it when my wife asks what happened in the bathroom sometimes
1: (laughs) but they quickly realized that the only thing that was killed was brown tom's elderberry wine And uh, they know that that Lily and the mayor have been captured, and they head off to the great tree. But first, they must pass the bog of eternal (laughs) stench. But they make it to the swamp that they have to cross to get to the big dark tree. And Screwball is the one saying, I don't want to go. I don't want to do this. And Gump's like, good, you go first. Because Gump's like the leader. (laughs) And, you know, Screwball makes his way across. And he's like, I made it. I'm on the other side. And then he gets eaten by Meg. But, lucky for him, she doesn't like foul-tasting fairies. But she likes
0: Jack. What a fine, fat boy you are, Jack. You don't really mean to eat me, do you, ma'am?
2: Oh, indeed I do!
0: (laughs) I fucking love Meg, and she is one of the most Sam Raimi-looking creatures I've ever seen. Like, she could just pop up in an Evil Dead movie, and I wouldn't give a fuck. It would make sense.
1: Now, you want to talk about shitty, jarring cuts in the U.S. version. I am right there with you on this one because this exchange happens and then he immediately chops off her head. Yeah. And- that you'll notice when she first comes out, she's looking at his shield and tapping on it with her nails a little bit like she's looking at herself. And in the director's cut, he actually starts talking about how she's so beautiful and fair and how men must love her and tricks her into being distracted by her own reflection, admiring herself and then chops her head off. Yes. Yes. That makes so much more sense because this is just a dude who sits around and pets foxes and talks to birds and shit. Yeah.
0: <laughs> you sound like me on my poltergeist rant. <laughs> but at any rate,
1: mini boss defeated. So once the whole group makes it across, they are walking across the stone that shifts. And I think it's screwball. Oh, my God. How do I not know this for sure? I'm pretty sure it's screwball. Goes to grab a vine. And he does the yank thing to see if he'll hold his weight. But he, like, lets the shock of his weight hit the rock some more. (laughs) (laughs) And so it falls. And they all end up falling. And uh, they shoot the tubes like in Goonies. (laughs) And uh, they land in or they slide down into the bowels of the great tree. And they land in darkness's pantry. And that's really what it is. We're about to find
2: out.
0: (laughs) Is it an oubliette?
1: No, 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 (laughs) no, there's well. So an Oubliette, the only way to get in is straight up and straight down, right?
0: Right, right. Sure. (laughs) Does that make hell an Oubliette? Deep thoughts with Jesse. (laughs) So
1: now in this pantry, they realize in the cage next to him is Blunder. So he didn't slide down into the bowels of hell. He slid down into the bowels of the tree and he takes off his helmet and reveals he's just another fucking elf because he's like. We're both screwed, but we're all brothers. And they're like, holy shit, how did you get to be in this? He's like, it's a long story. And they don't go into it because he's quickly taken away to be prepped for fucking dinner by the cannibals.
0: I really like if you look one of his hands and maybe even one of his feet, he's turning into a goblin. Yes. Like he has the monster call. And that really, they really go into like Fae lore in both the movies we covered today because that's what was supposed to be happening to Toby. And I actually didn't mention it in the original script. His feet, he had goblin feet. The baby did. Like you're ah. starting to turn.
1: So now with no escape, Jack's like, well, f- why is everybody freaking out? Just Gump, tell Una to go fly off and find the keys. And Gump's like, the keys are too heavy. She can't fucking it you, <laughs> moron. And, uh, <laughs> and Una reveals her secret and Gump hisses at her like a cat. <laughs> he and does. anybody, you may remember this growing up with me. Anybody who's ever seen me hiss as an act of displeasure towards someone <sighs> That's this why is why do i do that yes <laughs> people always think i'm at- people always think i'm acting like a cat or more usually why are you doing the vampire thing like never mind <laughs> but it's because of this scene it's the,
0: i don't it's it's my gump i really like it because you can tell ridley scott or at least the writer one of them did a lot of research on like fey lore because he's an elf gump is but he's fey and he he has magic and he's like, just unlock the door with your magic. And it hurts someone <laughs> when he touches it. And it's because Faye can't touch cold iron. Yeah. And the, yeah, ga- it's all- the gates are made of iron. It is so well done.
1: Yeah. That's all the shit in there that the, your average American audience doesn't get it. And that's, you know, I was young enough that it didn't matter. It was a fun ride. But yeah, there's so much shit when you go digging into this that like the shit was done right. The guy that was working on this really was fucking writing fairy tales out of boredom and knew his lore.
0: He had his fucking dungeon master guide next to him. He had his (laughs) player's handbook next to him.
1: But uh, Una says she'll do it as long as she gets a kiss from Jack. But Jack isn't into it. So she's like, fuck it. And she transforms into Lily. And Jack almost goes for it, and he's like, "No, it's just more fairy glamour." And uh, and she, whatever, a, a fairy's heart beats fast and free, like she's just totally. <laughs> and and she flies off, the light bulb flies off, crying in a fit of rage. They're fucked. She comes right back with the keys, <laughs> yeah, and this, I know. And, and this is the line I'm talking about. She looks through the cage and kind of kind of sums them all up and goes, "You all look like mourners at your own funeral." And. <laughs>
0: It's not important, but I love that line. So did I. And I love how she lets everyone out like peacefully. And then when it's Jack's turn, she's like, "Mm -mm," and she locks the (laughs) gate on them.
1: (laughs) So once out, the group splits up and Una ends up following Lily into darkness's lair. Screwball and Brown Tom find the unicorn and Gump and Jack run into some rage zombies. (laughs) I think that's completely cut in the director's cut. I can't remember. It's a very, very brief scene. It's like they go into a room, the guys pop out of the ground and they're like wrong room and fucking get back out. And that's like it. That's the most trouble they run into.
0: I believe in the director's cut, they actually have like a battle with some zombies or demons or something. in a room. okay. So
1: maybe it's the opposite. Maybe it's actually longer in that version. Yeah. Yeah. There's not a lot of action beats in the movie. And I think no, that's another not. reason that it wasn't enjoyed by us audiences because it's
0: my us know. ass enjoyed it.
1: it's it's a slow burn it really it's a anyways i'll save it for the end so now we're we're (laughs) in we see darkness in his chair like we did in the opening in the u.s version at least (laughs) and uh and again in this version you still don't see him in the director's cut but he calls out to his father about his girl trouble and uh he's being serious here. He's like, I don't understand. Like she's she's totally captured me. How do I win her over? And he's told, Woo her, charm her, make her one of us and uh, it's it's he's fucking he's Darth Vader talking to the fucking Emperor. Like, that's <laughs> what I think of, man. And uh, this sets up the my the best scene in the movie to me, and that's the dark dance and darknesses reveal. Um, this is so good, and it's Mia Sarah's best acting in the fucking movie. And I ain't even talking about the dialogue part, but we'll get to it. So. Darkness has this fucking elaborate spread set up on the table with fucking food and wine, and everything's covered in glitter. Cause it, it we're we're in the bowels of the tree now. It's like glitter, yeah. Put glitter on the fucking apples, anyways. <laughs> and uh, so it's just, and Darkness isn't in there yet. It's just Lily, and she's seeing all this shit. And she goes over to this this um, little box because there's all these treasures and trinkets on a vanity. And she opens it up and she pulls out this necklace and she like holds it up and looks through it. Just like Andy does in Goonies. I'm not kidding. It always (laughs) reminds me of that shot. And uh, she sees this shadowy, faceless dancer behind her. And this is one spot where between the Tangerine Dream score and the Jerry Goldsmith score, I like Tangerine Dream so much better. The weird music box music, like clown circus-like shit during this, and then the way it changes to the dark shit as what's about to happen happens. I like this so much better. So as Lily sees the dancer, she's like immediately starts to like fall under this spell and she's like in a trance and it leads up to her standing by the fireplace with her arms outstretched and like this look of longing on her face it's so good and that's what i'm talking about that one shot of her and it sucks man because it's ruined because her hands cover in half of her face and you (laughs) you can see half her face and it's like this is there's so much desire and passion like it sells it right then that like whatever it's happened and the fucking dancer comes up and embraces her and then there's a cheesy green flash and uh Mm -hmm. (laughs) the dancer spins around and it's no longer faceless it's lily and she's goth as fuck i I just i love all this setup right here and she's so good in these scenes and she spins around until she stops in front of the mirror that looks like it birthed the oculus mirror (laughs) (laughs) and before she has time to realize what the fuck have i turned into The fucking fingernails and hand come out of the mirror and the hoof comes out of the mirror and darkness is slowly fucking revealed, stepping out of the mirror. And in the director's cut, this would be the first time you actually see his ass. None of the blacklight shit from the opening.
0: And it's very powerful. I would say it's the best villain entrance in the history of film. Maybe if, if you're watching the director's cut. Cause, cause you had you've watched this movie, you've heard his voice. you've seen the shroud. And then now you see this giant fucking demon step out of a mirror.
1: <laughs> now, I'm gonna blow your mind here for a second. So the shadow dancer thing was not the plan. The original oh. plan was for Lily. To slowly transform into a cat because she may be innocent, but she's careless. She pranks Mm. Nell when she pulls the clothespin. She manipulates Jack. We're about to see her. You know, she calls the thing with the unicorn. We're about to see her manipulate darkness. Like there's something within her. But at the same time, that's being played with. Anyways, so the idea was the more corrupt she became, she would turn into more of a cat. And by this point in the movie, she's almost full cat. And then darkness steps out of the mirror and they fuck. That's what was supposed to happen. So that would be terrible. Well, one, they ran out of money for the cat idea. Thank God. (laughs) Then two, as it got closer to that scene, it was like, do we really need to go there? And somebody was smart enough to say we don't. So they didn't so as darkness comes out of the mirror she fucking faints and he leans over and there's that wide shot of him leaning over and the fucking wind blowing his cape and shit and they don't hold on it long enough but god damn that looks good (laughs) and uh she comes to with his big evil fucking red ass face right in front of hers and (laughs) she can't scream she can't do anything and she does the perfect little kid i'm so terrified i have no voice thing as she scurries backwards away from him. great it's so phenomenal i am sorry i'm gonna hang here for a while and i'm gonna gush a lot and then i'll move on
0: <laughs> this scene is like the the escher painting scene for me in labyrinth like this is possibly <laughs> my favorite scene in the movie honestly
1: but uh we quickly learn because there's conversation because he's got this spread set up and he's like how does my bride like her dress and like all this shit like he's like you're mine now like like come here with me and uh He ends up saying that he's found his true mate.
2: Was it not your sin trapped the unicorn? Even now, the evil seed of what you have done germinates within you. No.
1: So what we see is by now, Jack and Gump are watching through the doors because Una saw what was going on. Obviously, she went and got them. And Gump's already saying, well, she's turned. Be thankful she still lives. Like, <laughs> like don't go with your heart now, Jack. We're on a mission. And uh, <laughs> he doesn't say that verbatim, but that's the point he gets across. And um, they hear Darkness say the last unicorn dies tonight because Sunshine is his destroyer. One of my biggest beefs with the director's cut is the movie opening with that monologue. I don't think it's fair to open with darkness saying, I require the shadows of the darkness because sunshine is my destroyer and then move on to the movie. I like it being revealed later in the movie.
0: It's kind of neat, though, because he also talks about how he can't like basically manipulate anything in the human realm while there's light also. Right. Like that protects everybody. And I feel like that makes you understand why it's Blix and these other two goblins running around instead of this fucking giant demon going and whooping ass himself. It's because he literally is powerless as long as the sun's allowed to rise. So I kind of like this setup a bit.
1: And it's an allegory for Satan because he's he's obviously cast down and stuck in the shadows and can't do what he wants to do and has to have his underlings do his bidding. It's very, to me, there's very biblical undertones, but I find that in. And it's the old stories that like grim fairy tales, that they were supposed to be lessons about the, the evil and good and evil and don't do this bad shit will happen to you. And don't just bitch about everything being unfair.
0: Right. I think it's fascinating that it has all these biblical undertones and he looks like a giant stereotypical demon. But they have him react in the way things happen in these scenes, even with lily turning into like goth lily is very fae it's almost like he's just like a fae creature himself that happens to look like christianity's version of a demon i don't know it's just really weird it's like a mixed signal you have the biblical undertones but you could he could have looked like anything else and he's just like a fucking you know fairy overlord trying to trap his prey right
1: yeah he is but he is the best looking devil dude ever put on screen in In the history of time and and Tim Curry was walking around on fucking eighteen inch stilts to do that shit that they put the hooves on and shit.
0: The whole rig was fantastic, like the yeah. the horns and shit. It was all too heavy, right? And they had to remake it.
1: Yeah, and they and uh, Ridley Scott said that by the time they remade it, you it would hurt your brain to pick one up because they literally weighed ounces. He says, "I don't know what they're made of," but after we had all the problems with the rig, they did this, and they were fucking amazing. They were so lightweight and fragile they couldn't use them in the fight scene. And there <laughs> is a stunt double at the fight scene at the end because of that, partially
0: because of that. It's like the uh, the Ludo suit in Labyrinth. It was a man in a giant puppet suit, right? Yeah, with a fucking was- TV strapped to his head, so he I know. knew where he's going. It was so fucking heavy that they couldn't do it. So they had to remake the whole thing from scratch and make it lighter. And even being like, I don't know, it was like 40% lighter. It was still so heavy. They had to have two actors play them and take turns because they were getting exhausted.
1: Yep. This some serious shit. And this is what, but that goes back to saying, you know, and I know we're going off on a tangent here, but, uh, that's what makes all the old school practical stuff so much fun is there's so much charm. There's so much character and there's so much human interaction. Right. And I'm not t- taking away from digital artists, but I'm sorry, guys, we're still not there. You you still can't, you still can't perfectly do it. But at any rate. <laughs> So upon hearing that sunshine is darkness is destroyer, Jack has a flashback thinking back to Lily's charm that reflected in his face. And he had seen the mummy recently and he knew how they used to like <laughs> shit underground. <laughs> but in all seriousness, he says he thinks he knows a way to kill him. So they meet up with Screwball and Brown Tom back in the kitchen and they hear blunder in a pie that hasn't been cooked yet. And they end up cutting him out of that. So he's there to help out, too. And they start collecting these huge plates, and they're like bronze or something. They're, they're big. They're, I'm guessing they're the cannibals plates or darknesses plates, whatever. That's what they look like. <laughs> there's a fuck ton of them, like all on display on the walls, all the way up to the ceiling and shit. And for time's sake, they're throwing them down from the top and then throwing them like Frisbees across the room. And Brown Tom and Screwball get a little too fucking cavalier with their throw in and screw Brown Tom overthrows, screwball misses the throw, and this one plate crashes into the stack of other plates behind him. And the problem is, is this wakes up Leatherface and Pyramid Head. And that's what <laughs> Thank
0: I, you. Thank <laughs> you. I was like, holy fuck, it's Pyramid Head because I didn't know what Pyramid Head was the last time I saw this movie. <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> and so they wake up and there's a quick battle that ensues with Jack jumping around on a table is mainly what happens <laughs> in
2: all seriousness.
1: Yeah, yeah. And he eventually dumps out this like giant industrial foundry size pot of people soup on the cannibals. And they fucking cook in a wash of steam and everybody vamps out. And they realize there's this shaft right next to the kitchen that heads to the sky. How <laughs> convenient, but I don't care. Second mini boss defeated. <laughs>
0: That might actually be the scene I was thinking of earlier when I said they fought some guys uh, earlier. Yeah, I think I might have actually been thinking of this.
1: So uh, I think at this point we're, we're pretty much, it's a weird turn, but third act, guys. <laughs> so meanwhile, Darkness is really trying his best to win over Lily. And he's just a lonely, misunderstood dude. Right. Cause I mean, that's a lot of what he's saying. He's calling to his mother, darkness and to his father. And he's like, I feel this presence and it's tormenting me and I don't understand it. And this, this girl is everything and he's just fucking in love and it's everything he can't fucking have because she's innocent and pure. And that's, that's the story here. It's the duality of the whole thing. And, uh, another line, I love this line of dialogue because he's like, eat, drink. And she throws shit off the table and the floor and she yells, I do nothing for your pleasure. If you ever hear me say that, it's because of this movie (laughs) and darkness in hearing this is like, fuck this. And he throws shit off the table and goes charging down the side of the table at her. And as soon as he gets, gets up to her face, they hear the mayor yelling from the killing floor. And Lily's reaction is quite surprising.
2: I hear a throat begging to be cut. Are you so anxious to see blood flow? As you are to drink it.
1: Well, fuck, she's turned. Gump was right. Uh, they're all fucked. And uh, she follows it up saying that she'll stay with him as he wishes, but he has to grant his bride one gift and that's letting her kill the last unicorn and darkness busts the nut. I mean, <laughs> Tim Curry, the look on his face when he's like, Oh yeah. Yeah. Like I just wanted sex, but you want to kill the unicorn top shelf, <laughs> <laughs> but it's good. It's just, it's so theatrical. His reaction. It's really good. so, Jack and the boys are setting up the plates and we see that they've got them going all the way to said killing floor. Now, for some reason, Screwball was the one that got sent up the shaft of light with a uh, a plate strapped to his back. Because Gump looks at it, he's like, hmm, take a Peapot Pixie to make this climb. And Screwball's like measuring, like looking through his hands and shit and rubbing his chin. <laughs> like he's a he's a general contractor that like, he's, <laughs> he's, he's, he's done so many by sight bids that he's like, I'll do it. Well, uh... <laughs> He gets up there and he falls fucking asleep. He's like, fuck it. I'll take a nap. Sun's going down, dude. You got shit to do. So Gump and Jack come up on the killing floor, which is really cool, but has one really dumb thing, which I'll bring up later. And shit looks real. Cause they got the unicorn with this chain on it, pulling its head down on this block for, uh, for the chopping. And what's neat is in all the scenes that are intercut when she's like, I, I hear a throat begging to be cut and all that. And you see the in the commentary or the behind the scenes is referred to as the monk that's standing there holding the horse. That's the trainer. And they actually had problems with this scene because the trainer lost control of the horse. Oh, The horse, the shots of the horse freaking out are 100 percent legit. And the, the trainer was like, this is not going good. I hope you're rolling because we're about to be done for the day. <laughs> um, oh, it gets worse, though. But at any rate, so they see Darkness and Lily, and it looks like she intends to do it. And they draw their bows, and Jack's real hesitant, and Gump is all about killing Lily. It's like, that's not her anymore. Take the shot. And finally, Gump's just like, fuck it, I'll do it. And Jack's like, no, 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 I'll do it. So you got Gump drawn down on Darkness, and you've got Jack drawn down on Lily. And uh, Lily draws the sword up over her head and says some sick, twisted shit she's like i am married to the dark and may the may my offering be made of flesh and blood and uh, like holy shit she intends (laughs) to do it i think gump even says something along those lines and then she fucking slams the sword down cutting the chain and starts screaming run to the unicorn now that quick shot of the unicorn running forwards and like stumbling forwards that looks like a horse stumbling because that's a pit and the horse fell down the fucking pit oh shit but it's okay they had six of them Horses, not pits, but in all seriousness, the horse fell, they kept the shot. And that's why you'll notice after the arrows get shot and it shows them hitting darkness and it cuts back to Gump and Jack and then back to their vantage point, looking down below the horse is suddenly on the other side of that little half wall, like everything's cool. That's different horse. Um, what
0: happened to the first horse? <laughs> that pit apparently went to hell. I've been to the racetracks. I see what happens when a horse breaks a leg. <laughs>
1: Oh, but in all seriousness, they had six horses during the filming. They brought them in from Spain. There's a whole story about them not being able to get them back home because they wouldn't let them go on a boat or something. Um, but yeah, that horse was fucking stumbling and falling down into like a 20 foot pit when that shit happened.
0: How Take do that, you pita. think Jack was? <laughs> <Shit>. <laughs> oh my God. We're going to get so much hate mail, but at least we'll be getting mail. <laughs> How do you think, uh, Jack would have felt if he was wrong and she like straight up slit the unicorn's throat though. Like for real, it would have been like, Hmm, I'm out.
1: I I think in all seriousness, I think we would have got a real quick, like, and the fucking Eagles from Lord of the Rings would fly in through that big hole in the wall and carry Jack away. So after all this shit goes down, Jack zip lines down. There's really is like a zip line there for some reason down to darkness. And they go hand to hand. While Gump sends down a volley of arrows.
2: What are we here? A little boy.
1: Jack is obviously no match for darkness. His first fight was with Meg Mucklebones, and that was like, what, two hours ago? And, <laughs> and he's a tiny little dude compared to fucking like Devil Dude, Satan, Beelzebub, whatever the fuck he is. I love that he's just called Darkness. That's Lord Darkness. That's awesome as shit. But, uh, anyways, so they start to fight, and <laughs> like, Darkness will like barely swing his giant sword at, at, at Jack and like it dents and cut and caves in his fucking shield with one hit and shit. So Jack's doing all his flips and shit and jumping around. Well, and this Tom Cruise was not all about doing his own stunts back then, by the way, he did what he could, but there was a lot of stunt work. Yeah, it was not him.
0: And it's one of those speed and finesse versus brute strength battles, right?
1: Yes. And I buy that because darkness is big and slow and he's small and fast. He can evade then. So that's what he's doing. But eventually darkness grabs him by the face and throws his ass across the room and he hits the ground and he notices that he's sitting next to the fucking alicorn. So darkness must've dropped it when he went fucking, you know, two handed with his big ass sword. And, uh, it goes into this like little fiery fucking hole in the floor. It's, it's hell stuff, you know, just whatever. And Darkness <laughs> is like fucking summoning fire and little poofs and stuff. Like you could tell where the big budget version of this yeah. would have went. So as Jack reaches into the little hell stuff to get the Alicorn, we cut back to Una. And Una has flown up to help Screwball because Gump had sent her and said, it's time. We're set up. You go. And she's been, we've been seeing shots of her going down the hallways and shit. And you'll notice in those shots, she looks like a battery's not included UFO. Like <laughs> she's real, she's real big and weird in those shots. Those are optical. The rest of it's a light on the string, but, and this is probably the light on the string and then just blown up in composite, but she looks different and I don't like that. But anyways, so she gets up there and screwballs asleep. And she can't lift the fucking plate, but she wakes him up and together they lift up the plate and we follow the blue beam of light as it flies around and back to blunder who you mentioned who was turning into a goblin. He's standing in front of the closed doors to the killing floor just as looking at his hand like this shit's getting worse.
0: (laughs) (laughs) This thing's got to (laughs) go.
1: The light hits the last mirror, blasts him, blows the doors off their fucking hinges, just as Jack plunges the alicorn into darkness's stomach. And as soon as darkness is hit by the light, it doesn't knock him back first. He just throws his fucking head up and he's like, father, protect me. And he fucking goes sliding towards this giant hole in the wall. If sunshine is your only destroyer, why do you, why'd you build a room with a giant hole in the wall that goes outside?
0: I'm just saying I took that as part of like the biblical sense like he was the darkness from the void and he was banished and that's just more of the void like that his world is like on the edge of the void
2: hey
0: and honestly that's how I took it
1: it's a fucking fairy tale movie I'll buy that
0: (laughs) I'll I'll I'll,
1: I'll fucking tip So Darkness throws his hands out to the side and like his claws and the alicorn because he's got that one hand like making sparks as he's sliding back and he delivers his uh, no light without dark monologue. And he slides back all the way to the edge. And Jack picks up uh, Darkness's big ass sword. And there's a real good shot of of Jack in the the smoke and all the steam and shit. And him slowly raising the sword up next to him. And you cannot tell me that does not look like a piece of fucking Zelda art. It really (laughs) does. I'm so serious right now. And he gets up to Darkness. And he fucking chops off his hand. The alicorn falls to the ground. And Darkness flies off into the night sky. And explodes like the original Death Star explosion. It wasn't a big overproduced thing. It's just five little points of light that fly off to the side. Luckily, in the director's cut, there's not seven fireballs and a ring of Saturn flying off of darkness when he explodes. <laughs> How is it that Truth. I'm putting so much Star Wars shit in this?
0: <laughs> you turned into me for one episode. Oh, um,
1: So darkness is, is dispatched and they find Goth Lily under a sleeping spell. And Gump tells Jack that only he can solve this riddle. And that's in the U.S. version. It's a fucking callback to the riddle in the fairy dance scene, which was dumped in this version.
2: Yeah. So
1: that's why Gump says that line. She's still in the goth clothes and the goth makeup. Keep this in mind. We cut to Gump on his mission to return the alicorn to the stallion and the stallion comes back to life. The snow melts and Jack lays down Lily on the diving rock. In her old clothes, mm-hmm. with her makeup and her hair thing. So did Una redress her and do her makeup? Did all the little elf dudes strip her naked and put her dress? I don't like this. I
0: don't like this. I'm going to bring the fairy tale angle back in, okay?
1: No. Nope. That only works if it's when he puts the ring back on, and this is before he even retrieves the ring.
0: The ring wakes her up, right? Like, that's the Sleeping Beauty kiss. I'm talking about a different fairy tale element. She was in her princess garb and whatnot when the green fey magic put her in the black dress. Yes. So maybe when they connect the unicorn horn to the unicorn and put light back into the world, it destroyed all the dark magic. And technically, she never took off her princess attire. She appeared magically in the goth clothes. So either A, when darkness died, or B, when they restored order to the world, it broke the spell. That's all I got.
1: You're not getting a tip this time. I tipped the last time.
0: (laughs) But I mean, I'm serious. If you think about it, she magically went in the goth outfit. So why can't she magically come out of it?
1: I'm with you on that. I just, I would have liked, and I'm, I understand where you're coming from, where the alicorn sets the world right. Why doesn't it, why can't it, why is it a stretch to say it sets Lily closer back to normal? Yeah. And then Jack awakes her, Jack's love awakens her from the sleeping spell. But Jack does his swan dive thing again. And this time he finds the ring and he comes back up and he puts it on her finger and she comes back and. I think they have a kiss. I'm not sure. And we get a very, very animated movie ending here because Jack and Lily go off one way towards the sunset. But but we're forgetting all of our all of our cast and our friends we just met. And they turn <laughs> around and they wave across this gorge to to Gump and and the elves and everybody. And even the unicorns run up behind them. And fucking the Tangerine Dream song with lyrics is going at this point now. And you know, so you guys, oh, Lily. And, you know, it's this big crescendo and they wave goodbye and they go prancing off into the sunrise and the end. But it's ruined with it fading into darkness laughing. And it's not just hearing him laughing like the end of Poltergeist three bad. You see a shot of him repurposed from earlier in the movie laughing. And it's so dumb. I hate that. I We I understand there's no light without dark. He's not really dead. One right. of his forms has been destroyed, but he still has to exist because light still exists. I t- come on, Scott. We're not Ridley. Scott, we're not that dumb. You didn't have to put it in there. Now in the director's cut, it opens up a very interesting door because you don't see the alicorn even get returned to the unicorn. We know that's what's supposed to happen. And Lily just asked Jack if she can come see him again tomorrow. And he's like,
0: sure, and goes off into the woods. Well, Jack lets her know that she's meant to be a princess and he's meant to be in the woods. So basically, she goes off to be a princess. He goes yeah, off yeah. to be a ranger in the woods with his little animal companions, and they agree to visit again. That that part's fine,
1: but it opens the door to... Was this all a lavish fairy tale young girl thing, imagining what adventures in life she would go on with Jack? And this was just a day with her visiting her in the woods and then going back to the palace. And there's nothing that hints at that.
0: Wow, I never thought of that. That's fucking deep.
1: But that ending opens the door to that. Is all I'm saying.
0: But I, I like
1: I like the cartoonish fucking ending, and it makes sense because. What Ridley Scott said he wanted was he wanted to take Beauty and the Beast and Grim Fairy Tales, mash it together and make it feel like Fantasia. If you animated this, (laughs) I'm serious, though, if you animated this and put Jerry Goldsmith's score on it, it fucking prints money. It makes sense. It's fantastical enough and whimsical enough to do that. The way it was done with the lower budget with Goldsmith score makes it feel like it's taking itself too seriously to be what it was trying to be. It's not the what's on screen is not over the top enough to match that that world to me. And I think that's part of why it got shit on so much is $25 million budget. And it made 15 million. Yeah. It was a, it was as big as a bomb as labyrinth. And these are both movies that found their audience later and are ginormous cult classics. And that's how we see this happen. Yeah. And I said it a couple of times, you know, the look of the film, the production value in these giant fucking set pieces and, and, Fucking Ridley Scott was so smart. Not only was all this giant shit built, he got like mylar sheets that are reflective and set them up on either side of the soundstage and made the set dressers dress those trees all the way around. Mm
2: -hmm. So
1: he would get the reflections too. So it looked like everything was bigger than it really was. Not only do they build it huge, but they went the extra mile to make it feel even bigger. The vision for this to be a Lord of the Rings style epic quest is lost to time. And... That's sad, but seeing this at eight years old, I bought into this so much. Tim Curry is fucking phenomenal. Mm -hmm. Rob Batine's work on all this makeup in this movie is some of the best shit you can see in cinema as far as just creature makeup goes. It's so seamless. Yes. Now, Tim Curry did have the, the big scary contact lenses, like they use an Evil Dead that a nurse has to take in and out.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: They did do that. And I gush a lot about this movie, but I, I saw it at the right time. And like in my early and into my late teens, I got made fun of so much for liking this movie. You know, that's stupid fairy tale shit, but it's fucking art and it's a cool story. And the biggest thing for me, the biggest thing is the parallels between this and the Legend of Zelda? I can admit it. There is <laughs> so much that pulls from the same well, but all these fairy tale stories pull from the same well. At its core, this story is like George Lucas said about Star Wars: it's a fucking fairy tale in space. <laughs> but I don't like the director's cut. I just don't.
0: <laughs> it's really funny. I had never seen the director's cut, and I have loved this movie since I was a child. I always loved Blix. The darkness. I mean, he never scared me, but he always looked so fucking cool to me. It's really funny. I guess I like the villains in this movie and not the heroes.
2: Totally. And
0: and the <laughs> the dark lily scene always stuck out to me. And I watched the theatrical version of the film for the podcast, and then went back to watch the director's cut out of curiosity because, as much as I always loved this movie, there were scenes that I just thought were edited so fucking bad. I thought they were confusing sometimes. And I'll be honest, those few scenes. Like, like honestly, the main one to me is, is when the unicorn loses its horn and the storm comes in and the frost, I preferred that so much better in the director's cut. I liked not seeing the darkness until the near the end of the movie. So much better. I liked that. You knew for a fact that Lily was a princess and she acted like a fairy tale princess. She sang a lot. She could control animals because that's not just a Disney princess thing. That is a thing taken From fairy tales. Yeah. And... I don't know. I I just I kind of liked all that. There were some other scenes that, like in hindsight, I liked better watching the director's cut. Like it's not so abrupt when she touches the unicorn and Jack gets mad and the ring and them kissing. When you watch the director's cut, because it's actually like a long ebb and flow of them fighting and her yeah. flirting back and manipulating. But like you didn't have to have all that. But I I feel like the director's cut was closer to the Lord of the Rings vibe. Yes. Than the legend that we got. Because I feel like it was a more serious, dramatic film. And quite frankly, I'd love to see this movie remade with more money. I'd love for Ridley Scott to do it too.
1: Yeah. Now, I don't think he would ever touch it. And what's really fascinating, actually, it's not fascinating. It's neat that he had the balls to do it on the Ultimate Edition, it makes you go to the director's cut. You have to actually no. I don't want that I want the theatrical version and then a little window pops up. Are you sure you want to go to the theatrical (laughs) version and then when you hit play there's a precursor to it that comes up from Ridley Scott and it's a story about how and this is on the Blu-ray this is after the what was on the DVD in 2002 because on the Blu-ray they found a pristine print master of the original theatrical version and used it for the Blu-ray transfer. And there's a little thing from Ridley Scott before it plays saying, this is how they found it. Blah, blah, blah. I had no involvement. Universal did this on their own. And he says, this is the best looking cut of legend that you can find. Each version has its own strengths. You decide which one is best. And then before the director's cut, there's a wall of text from Ridley Scott about how the prints were destroyed. We could only find this, blah, 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 blah. It's it's amazing that this even exists, yada, 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 yada. I'll leave it up to you to decide which version you think is best. Like you could tell he's like, I'm so sad that this isn't the good looking version, right? but this is the better version in my opinion. And maybe that goes a long way with it. Maybe I'm used to seeing the really good cut of it. And I'm going on and on about this movie. I fucking love
0: this it's movie. We, lo- <laughs> we love both of these movies. I will say labyrinth is my favorite of the two, but I love them in different ways. There's other things that I got into with like fantasy novels and stuff that I feel like labyrinth hits that well so hard. Yeah. I think it's why I like it. And Bowie's fantastic in it, but uh, they're, they're both great movies. I'm really sad that we couldn't fit dark crystal into this episode, (laughs) but hint, hint, there will be a dark fantasy two down the road.
1: Well, I mean, what else is out there? Like what? Willow? Time bandits? Never ending story? What the hell could we cover?
0: <laughs> all of it.
1: <laughs> yes. Soon. So in all seriousness, guys, this is a departure. In my experience, at least, people that are into horror are the same people that are into these weird pigeonhole genre flicks that nobody appreciated when they came out and everybody loves them now. So it's they both have elements of dark shit, even though you just listen to two guys nearly 40 go on and on about two coming-of-age stories of girls, which is one way you could look at it. (laughs) They're still fucking fun, and please give us that feedback to let us know if you like us branching off into territories that are still relatable to the horror genre.
0: But you have time to tell us your thoughts on that, because on the next episode, we're going to cover the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. This is God. Oh, shit. Yes, Josh, this (laughs) one's on you. As usual, guys, thanks for downloading the show and spreading the word. Please do not forget to rate and review us online. And please, please send us comments, questions, and suggestions to our email, sbyspodcast at gmail.com. We
1: would also love it if you could follow our Twitter and Instagram, both at sbyspodcast. And if you could get some other people to follow us too, it might motivate us to use them more.
0: See you guys on the next one.
1: Thanks for listening.
2: I am a part of you all.